Welcome to the IMDb Journey podcast, where we break down one movie a week from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews, and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson, and I love the smell of podcasting. It opens up my lungs. And I'm Dan Jeffrey, and don't fucking call me crazy. Don't do it, Hendo. I don't like it. And today we'll be breaking down the 1984 Sergio Leone classic, Once Upon a Time in America. Now be sure to stick around after the breakdown, where we'll be talking about other films we didn't get to on last week's podcast, including The Florida Project and the movie that just received the most Academy Award noms for this year, The Shape of Water. Dean, happy Australia Day, fella. Happy Australia Day. What a great way to spend it. Oh yeah, in, in, cooped up in the studio. It <laughs> does, does look like it's going to be raining soon, so you might... It was, ra- it was raining when I got here. Oh, was it? Oh, yep. okay. Yeah, we're well, for a treat Australia Day parties will be uh, getting wet. <laughs> How have you been anyway? Yeah, I've been good, mate. Yeah. Real good. You? Yeah, I've been fine. I've watched a heap of movies this week. A I have heap to. Of movies. I know we did say last week that we weren't going to watch too many this week, but yeah, I can't help myself. Yeah, we watch more. Yeah, so we've got a lot to talk about at the end of this. Just some extra news, guys. We will be bringing you a bonus podcast soon on our top films of 2017. There's just a couple of movies that need to be seen before we feel like the list can really qualify. For well, me, the big one is... Phantom Thread. Do you have any? Did you? I know you need to see Phantom Thread. Is there yeah, any definitely more? Phantom yeah. Thread. Oh, there's probably heaps I need to see, but none that I can think of off the top of my head. All right. Well, lucky for us, Phantom Thread is premiering next Thursday for us in Australia. If you have your top ten lists and you'd like to have them read out on the podcast, be sure to send them through to us using our email or any of our social pipes. Okay, so let's have a quick look at the IMDb top two fifty. What changes has there been this past weekend? Oh. Couple of small changes in the top 100. Green Mile has taken over once upon a time in the West, going from 32 over 33. Coco has dropped again. It's gone down from 37 to 39. So not that much. Still hanging in there. Let's see. The Departed uh, moves over Raiders of the Lost Ark. Terminator 2 has moved over Rear Window. Dust Boot has moved over Dungol. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but I have not seen that one yet. Singing in the Rain has moved over Full Metal Jacket, and Inglorious Bastards has moved over Toy Story 3. Moving on a little bit further down the track, we see that Blade Runner 2049 has dropped. It's gone down from 109 to 126. It's a fair drop. We also see that three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri has moved up from 129 to 114. Must be getting that all that uh, buzz. All that sweet Oscar nom buzz. Yeah. We also have a new debut in the top 250, Call Me By Your Name, debuts the list at 170. We'll be talking about that movie later on, judging by Dean's uh, we think we know what he's going to say about it. (laughs) I think we're going to get another uh from Dean in a minute because La La Land has dropped down again from 193 to 198. Uh. Yep. I was waiting for it. Uh, Like you predicted, Dunkirk has gone further down. It's gone from 199 to 217. So that's Almost out. Right down the bottom, we have three films that have been taken out. That is, sorry, I'm going to say this wrong, Mundabai MBBS. Not even close. Castle in the Sky and Dog Day Afternoon has dropped out again. And in its replacement, we have Fanny and Alexander at 248. Gangs of Wasserba moves up one spot to 249. And running at the 250 now is Once Upon a Time in India. Three films that I think exceed three hours long. Some even four hours long. So... Dean, you probably want to try and avoid those three films at the bottom oh, there. I love more than four-hour-long movies. I've seen all three of those films, and I'll tell you I only like one. So I'm hoping that several of those drop out too. <laughs> okay, without further ado, let's get into Once Upon a Time in America. The story of friends. As boys, they made a pact to share their fortunes. Agreed. Their loves. 
and their lives. You'll put up and you'll shut up. You hear nothing and you see nothing. Just like you did for Bugsy. So, Once Upon a Time in America, released in 1984, starring Robert De Niro, James Woods, Elizabeth McGovern, with some special appearances from Joe Pesci and Burt Young. Directed by Sergio Leone, his final film. He actually passed away a couple of years after this. Yeah, some have said that it was because of the failure of this movie in America did have some impact on his health. Yeah, you're right, Dean. When uh, the filming was complete, the... The footage ran for about eight to ten hours. This movie was designed to be eight to ten hours long. <laughs> I think. I think, in fairness, he was wanting to cut it down to two, three-hour movies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but the studio said, "Nah, no way. Get it down to one." So he did do a cut that went for three, just shy of four hours. Yeah, three hours and forty-nine minutes, which. Uh, that was the version I watched. I believe you watched the version that went for a little bit longer. Yeah, I watched the version that had a few extra scenes. I think it's about 15 minutes in total. And those scenes I'd actually never seen before and they stand out. The picture quality is much less than that of the rest of the movie, which might have been annoying, but for me it was actually nice to clearly pinpoint the scenes I hadn't actually ever seen and sort of thought about why these were taken out or why these ones are the ones that have been put back in. So it was interesting for me. Yeah, and a few days before the film's premiere in 1984, uh, one of the actors found out that the two-hour version, not the three-hour and 49 version, was going to be shown in the theatres. And he was heard to have said that no one would understand the movie in the new shortened version, and indeed the film did not do very well at the cinemas. It was shut out of the Oscars and received no nominations the only accolades it was, could have potentially got was a Best Director and Best Score nomination at the Golden Globes. However, when it was released on video and DVD, the original version, the original three-hour and 49-minute version was put on that and did finally find some commercial and critical success. Mm. Far too late, though. Far yes, too far late. Too so late. the budget for the movie was around $30 million and it's... Box office was five point something. Yeah, about five million. So yeah, five million. So, pretty yeah, big failure. Ma- massive loss. So Sergio Leone had refused an offer to direct The Godfather, an offer which he deeply regretted. Do, he deeply not regretted doing, not doing The Godfather. Who, really? What kind of man regrets doing The Godfather? Are you just making this up, or I, has he actually said that? This is legit. Why would I make it up? Well, you tend to embellish. <laughs> no, he he did re- he did regret. What are you, are you, what I, year did The Godfather come out? 76. 72. Ah! <laughs> so, The Godfather came out in 1972. Once Upon a Time in America came out in 84. Yeah. That just shows you how much of this guy, of Sergio Leone's life, this film took up. Yeah, so while the three-hour and 49-minute version is regarded as the definitive version of the film, Leone wanted the film to have a running time of four hours and ten minutes, which is the version you watched. Uh, the three-hour and 49-minute version left out 45 minutes in the end of some cons- like some essential material on the cutting room floor, including some further explanation of the mob and labor relationships, Noodles meeting Carol in 1968, and a good deal of footage featuring Noodles' relationship with Eve. Yeah, uh, also they changed it from a series of flashbacks and flash-forwards to a straight chronological film. Yeah, in the cut version, in the, the shortened yeah. version, yeah, and that sounds horrible. Yeah, that would not work for this film at all. Yeah, I'll um, I'll definitely say that if I had to watch a two-hour straight version of this, it would have been an absolute disaster. So I can understand why it did not get the success it did at the start. I actually heard that some of the reviewers who saw the American version 
and had the chance to see the European version, actually placed this movie on their best of 84 list and their worst movies of 84 yeah. list. Just shows the, the difference between what some editing can do. Yeah, it must have been, must have been massive. Yeah, this film actually took so long to be made that composer Ennio Morricone had finished most of the soundtrack before even filming was done halfway. Yeah, which I actually think isn't a bad thing. They said that um, the score was being played on set. And having a score like this that is so emotive and so powerful, I really feel like that would really help the actors get into the necessary frame of mind for the scene. Yeah, and with an 8.4 rating of over 250,000 ratings, it's currently sitting at number 69 and is the third highest Sergio Leone film behind what two films, Dean? That would be The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West. That's right. And it is James Wood's opinion that this film was Sergio Leone's finest work. So enough about the facts. Let's get into a plot summary. Dean, I believe you have one for us this week. Why don't you get into it for us? Okay, here we go. After receiving a mysterious invitation, the elderly David Noodles Aronson, played by Robert De Niro, returns to New York, where he had a career in the criminal underground in the 20s and 30s. Most of his old friends are long gone, yet he feels his past is unresolved. Told mostly in flashbacks, the film follows Noodles from a tough kid in a Jewish slum in New York, through to his rise to bootlegger and then mafia boss... Mafia? Mafia? I think it's either one. Depends where you live. Mafia Boss, a journey marked by violence, betrayal, and remorse. So I don't really want to talk about this. This. Um... Right. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about this shortened version too much during this film. We all, we everyone knows that it's it's supposed to be this terrible film. I just wanted to talk about some of the stuff that they 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 cut from that movie as well by also putting it in chronological order. They took out Noodles meeting Deborah. Uh, in the 60s, so the whole scene of her in the mirror, wipe off the makeup, that whole thing was not there. Uh, and the film's garbage truck and the opium den meeting at the end was altered so that Max or Bailey was, would shoot himself off screen and they would have none of that other stuff. Yeah. So I'm very glad that they re- re-edited it and restored it this way because I, I, don't think we'd be, I don't think we'd be talking about this film at all if it was the other no, way. No, definitely not. Okay, so I want to start by talking about one of my favourite parts of this movie, almost my actual favourite part of this movie, which is the score by Ennio Morricone. The music is so emotive. It really it really caused me to, to feel when I was watching this. It's haunting. It adds emotional weight to every scene. Even a small scene of a boy eating a cupcake meant for Peggy has so much impact just because of the music. If you take the music away from a scene like that, it's actually quite boring. But with the music in there, it becomes impactful. It becomes a special moment. And the music builds and builds and builds and makes every scene just that much more interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the score for this film was fantastic. I, I, it was usually the same along the way, but it was—it never got boring. Like it, that's, like it was always engaging and it always meant something in every every scene I was watching. I also, that pipe that's played throughout the film. Uh, by, it's like, called a pan flute, I a believe. A pan flute, yes. Uh, every time I heard I'm thinking, I've heard that from somewhere else. And I kept thinking, is it? I felt like it was from the Karate Kid, but maybe not. But I, I, I do remember it's, it's played in Kill Bill as well. And obviously, like, that makes sense because Tarantino's influence is more, like, he, he is... Yeah. Morricone, is that his, is that his last name? Ennio Mor- Morricone? Morricone? I think so. 
I think it's, yeah, yeah. we'll go. We and apologize if we're saying it wrong, but Morricone. Ennio. How about Ennio? No, nah, I prefer Morricone. Morricone. <laughs> Let's give the man some respect. Yeah. So, obviously, Tarantino has worked with Morricone several films, including The Hateful Eight as well. Only The Hateful Eight. Was it only The Hateful Eight? Yeah, only The Hateful Eight. Okay. But you can tell, as you said, from Kill Bill, that he is massively inspired by these sort of, um, I mean, it's not a Western, but pseudo-Western. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you know that the US distributor failed to file the proper paperwork so that Ennio Morricone's score, which is regarded as one of his best... Was couldn't be put up for nomination for the Academy Award that yeah, year because because that shit. That is a joke. Yeah, there's a lot of great scores, but none of them touched me like this one did. I was I've watched this like you know searched this music on YouTube and just put it on. It's so good. To continue on with the theme of the music and that, I like the use of the only actual song in this film, uh, Yesterday by the Beatles. Mm. I very much like it when they first they first have it where you see De Niro at the boardwalk. And it, and it cuts to when he's older to when he's younger. Mm. And they, they're playing it, and all you hear is the word yesterday. And they don't they don't say the words, all my troubles seem so far away. Yeah. Because it's it's not. He's still, all those troubles are there for him still, but they, yeah. they use that theme of yesterday to transition back in time yeah. without talking, like, without using the other lyrics that would negate the feelings that he's having or the problems that he's having at that point. Yeah, plus I feel like if you just flat out played the whole yesterday with all the lyrics and stuff you sort of you start focusing on the song yeah. and not the moment that it's showing yeah very very good use of it but also notice in some of the earlier scenes when he's a child in New York the themes are varied like it's the same sort of it's the same sort of score but they throw in a few extra instruments like the trombone trumpet even to give it some some lightheartedness some lift and then they take it away when he's an adult and much older and it becomes even more impactful because you've heard it before. Yeah. Now, we, we do try to keep, even though we're not doing it scene by scene now, we do try to keep our thoughts chronological, unlike the movie. One thing I did notice, one of the first things I noticed was at the, at the very start, the very first scene with the, the gangster shooting Eve, he puts a silencer on, but the, he shoots it and it's not silenced. It's, it's a gunshot. It's a legit gunshot. That, that was like, oh, okay. I really? thought he, yeah, he puts a silencer on and it's... And it's not like that was the sound effect they used for those times, because I remember in Doctor No, he has a silencer, and the sound is very muffled. Yep, yeah, no, not not like a game, not like a laser. That pew pew, that it was just. But this one is a an actual gunshot still, like a blast. Yeah, so that, that was like, oh, okay, I guess I don't understand that, but that's I did notice it. Dan, we know that obviously Robert De Niro played the role of Noodles here. Did you know two actors who turned down the role of Noodles? Tom Berenger. No, not Tom Berenger. Very high, well-known A-list actors. Paul even Newman. Now. No. Al Pacino and Jack Nicholson turned down the role of Noodles. Oh, really? Yeah. When did they turn it down, though? I don't know. In the early 70s when he was tr- thinking about doing the movie or when they were actually No, I actually film? think it was the early 70s because Robert De Niro was the first person cast in this. He yep. was approached for the role of Noodles during the filming of The Godfather Part Two. And he was actually later involved in choosing the rest of the cast members as well. So that's how long ago it was when they were considered. So yeah, uh, early 70s, mm. which is you know around the time of obviously Godfather Two and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when they're in the, and Chinatown when Jack Nicholson and Al Pacino are basically in their prime. So yeah, I don't, I don't blame them. I don't blame the choices. Mm. So I want to talk about a scene that probably gets some mixed opinions, and that's the phone ringing. Mixed opinions. Yeah. I, I remember when I first watched it, it really annoyed me. Yeah. I didn't understand it. 
I didn't know the point of it. And upon further watchings, I actually I appreciate it more. You sort of it's so it's such a loud ring for what, five minutes, but you sort of forget it's there by after a minute or two. Like it's still going, but you do forget. And they do a couple of of tricky little cuts where the phone will be ringing for a couple minutes, and then you'll see a phone, and you think, oh. This is the phone that's ringing. Yeah. Here we go. And they pick it up. And it still rings. And then it's a key I love that. I thought that it's was like, so good. What? The fake out. I thought it was yeah, I thought that was great. So for me, just just a, a note here. I have seen this film before, but I'd seen it a very long time ago to the point the only thing I remember about this film was the the right the scene right at the end with the garbage truck and, and James Wood or James Wood's uh, quotation marks walking behind the, the dump truck and then him disappearing. That was the only thing I remember about this film. Yep. Yeah. So to me, like this is kind of like my first viewing again watching this. Oh, exciting. Yeah. yeah. So when I saw this phone ringing and ringing and ringing, I was kind of like, okay, there's obviously a point to this. It's not annoying me, but there is a reason that this is happening. And I, 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 all these things, I, I, I like to try and figure all this stuff out. And I didn't quite think about it. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out what it was, what it was for until it gets to later on in the film, and you realise that Noodles is is calling the cops to to warn them about the the heist of the final final illegal shipment of, of booze, so that they can basically get sent to jail for a little time, which would hopefully convince Max to not go ahead and do this. It wouldn't convince him. It would pre- yeah, prevent okay. him yeah, it would, it would from pre- doing his crazy yeah. Federal Reserve bank heist. And obviously he doesn't go with the, the guys to this um, pickup and in the end it causes their death because you know, a big shootout and they all die. And he has this guilt over the fact that he did this. He called the cops to warn them and they all end up dying. This And this is... The phone ringing is like... Playing, it's it's like it's his guilt in his mind over and over when he's in because this is happening while he's in the opium den like getting all high and stuff. What is the phone ringing over and Everything. over in his head? Yeah, every <laughs> yeah, let's get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to There's that. There's only so long we can talk about this movie without talking about this. Well, actually, I want to talk. Can we talk about that right at the end? Because like, I want, uh, yeah, okay. yeah, I want to talk about that because that because it's the final the final scene. I wanna, yep. Yeah, I got a lot of things to talk about there. <laughs> yeah, so in his mind, it's just basically an a non-stop ringing telephone, like forever ringing. Basically, in, in the conscious of a man who called the cops and betrayed his friends. So that's what I, how I kind of see that. And I, I, and I like how it goes on and on and on and on. And again, okay, I, did, I said I wasn't going to go back to this shortened version. But in this shortened version, it rings once. Oh, really? It, once. Because it's in chronological order. You don't, like, it doesn't, it's not uh, yeah. as effective. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I did. It never bothered me that it was ringing so often. I just wanted to figure out what it was about. That's my interpretation of it. Oh, I think I think your interpre- interpretation is true. I don't think anyone disputes that the the phone ringing for so long does symbolise the significance of this moment for Noodles, who goes from, you know, gangster through and through to actually betraying his friends and going on the run. Yeah. In essence, and in the end, he and that's the thing. This is his this is his turning point. But it's all for it's all for shit because Max was the one that betrayed him. He's the one that got into the like purposely got into the got into the gun the gunfight, which killed he which killed Patsy and Cockeye. Yeah. And well, Max says at the end that that the cops are in on it. Yeah. The whole thing, like the cops already knew. Yeah. Um. So Max, Max preventing Noodles from going on this last heist with them, actually is a decent act from him. Which, considering what Noodles has just done and what Max has seen him do with the telephone, 
and the fact that police are in on it, so Max would know that Noodle's called anyway, it's actually one of the more honourable things that Max does for him. He lets him live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously, I think the biggest theme of this film is guilt. I think there's just guilt, like there's guilt shrouded on Max for what he did to Noodles. There's guilt shrouded on Noodles for what he, you know, end up doing that that caused their death. Their death mm. is, I think, guilt is a big overriding theme in this film. Yeah, do you agree with that? I think guilt, it would guilt and remorse is the number one theme of this film. Yeah, I think it rules a lot of what we're seeing and the character's interpretation of what is happening is often through the eyes of guilt. However, I just. Coming up, there is something that we want to get into that obviously uses that guilt and remorse, but I, I think that it's going to be a negative for me, and we'll we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, we want to try and keep this in chronological order. <laughs> yes, How that, dare yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. There's a negative in this film, Dean. <laughs> all right. Sorry, Shane, as well. This film is flawless. <laughs> now, all jokes aside, I actually don't have one negative thing to say about this movie. Okay. I've written pages and pages of notes, and not one time did it was I watching this movie and thought, "Eh, I didn't like that." Interesting. We will get to that. I also like heading back to the start where, what's his name? Uh, Fat Mo. That's not very nice. Is it Fat Mo? Fats. I think, I think he prefers Mo to be honest. They call. Oh, <laughs> how about this? They call him Fats when he's a kid. <laughs> Sorry, Fats. Like, holy shit! Oh, well, he is. He is a fat kid. How did this guy like grow? Especially <laughs> when they when Noodles sees him when he comes out of prison. He's like, oh, yeah, you put it, I think you lost the weight. He's like, oh, yeah, you're so funny. Oh, uh, classic Fats. <laughs> the classic Fats. You know what I think, Fats? You know who I think uh, Fats looks like? For me, I saw it. I was like, gee. Is that Paul Giamatti? Oh, really? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought, I might actually look this up. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, I really do think... Yeah, okay, I see that. Yeah, at that scene where the guy, where Noodles is coming and you, and you think he's coming up the elevator and the guy's waiting for him, it's so obvious he's not coming up the elevator and he's like going around the back. But still, when he got shot in the head, that scared the shit out of me. Like, I knew he wasn't coming up the elevator and he was going to pop up behind. Yeah. But it was at a point where I didn't expect him to do it. And it was... Um, it's a very violent start to the film. Oh, yeah. Like, the blood is... Like, Mo's face is, like, really disgusting. I, the, there was some points when the when blood was in the film that it definitely looked fake. Yeah, I, I actually think for a movie made in early 80s or mid-80s, the blood actually wasn't too bad. A lot of the times you watch these 80s oh, so films... Oh, so you're finally looking at, looking at a film with non-2018 eyes now, are you? Here we go. Hendo's <laughs> running gag for the day. Um, no, but we... Yeah, a lot of the times the blood is bright red. And in this film, like like I think we said in Die Hard, the blood is so... Like, it's bright red. It's very... It sort of takes you out of it because of how unrealistic it looks. But in the in this movie, the blood is not like that. It's very... Um, it's dull. It's duller than than I would expect for an 80s movie. I actually disagree with you there. I think the blood in certain points is very bright and kind of fake. That scene where they shoot the, well, is, the union leader. What's his name? Is. O'Donnell? Is it you O'Donnell? Know, you know it is fake, don't you? But is it supposed to be fa- look fake? Well, uh, is he getting shot? Like, oh, yeah, he just got shot with fake blood. It's all right. You don't get shot with blood. <laughs> he got shot, shot with bullets. He got shot and the fake, fake bullets. He got shot and the fake blood came out of his leg. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. It wasn't that big of an issue. I just I did notice it. I'm like, yeah, blood isn't that... It looked like red paint at some points, but at you know, other points it didn't, so I'm okay with it. All right, let's talk about when we first see the 35 years later Old Man Noodles. First thing I thought was, wow, this makeup is fantastic. It's subtle, 
but obviously unmistakable. Even like little things like extra fat on his neck, lots of small wrinkles, not overdone in any way. But one thing I did notice, when you first see him, he's missing his uh, trademark mole. Is it is it the Robert De Niro mole? Like, okay, so what I saw was when he's when he's peeking through the the hole again, and it cuts back to the yeah. you know the early ages, and I see the mole. I'm like the mole, like. That's is that that's not the kids' mole, is it? That's the oh, fake it, mole. It can't be. It can't be that kids' mole. I actually I went I, back. I went back and went, okay. Yeah, the De Niro mole is there. So that so. Yeah. Like, I, it, I I but when he first does when you first see him as old man noodles, his mole's gone. No. Nah, and I, it, and it comes back, and no, it's not just got got makeup on. It's faded. It comes back prominently in like the next scene. It was really odd yeah. for me. What are you say saying in one specific scene? It's in, not there. In that scene where you first see him looking through. It's gone. What, through the peephole? Yeah. The old man noodles, the Nero? Yes. Hmm, okay. All right, fair enough. I don't remember that, but yeah, I did laugh a lot when it cut back to young noodles and there's just this big mole on his <laughs> on his face. <laughs> and I'm like, that is the fakest mole I've ever seen, but they definitely need it for the oh, De Niro yeah. mole. <laughs> also, a dollar twenty for the bus back in the day. Dollar twenty. A dollar twenty for what, the bus. What, 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 um... What timeline are you talking? Not like old, like the, the the earliest timeline. What is that? That's the the, ki- the, the tens. The tens, I guess. The kid noodles. Yeah, yeah. Paying for the bus, doll a dollar twenty. Are you sure it was a dollar twenty? That sounds massive. Dollar twenty. It's dollar twenty. Jesus. Inflation. Yeah. Twenty two dollars sixty for the bus these Jesus. days. <laughs> so yeah, you are right. It's actually a, a shit ton of money. It does sound like a lot because when they're crazy. talking about like. A penny and what that'll get. Wow, you're spending a whole penny. Like, <laughs> how many hot dinners can we get for that? Just to touch back on when Noodles is looking through the peephole in the first time, you can, yeah. like, this isn't an old man, and he gets up and he looks through the peephole. Now, what's he hoping to see there? He's just reminiscing. Nothing, obviously. Yeah. He's just so nostalgic about it. This old man looks through this peephole that he used to spy on Mo's sister. And there's so much sadness in De Niro's eyes. Now, this performance from De Niro is generally quite subdued. I thought you were going to say underrated. Who underrates it? Every time I hear about De Niro's performance, you always hear about... Well, it's hard with De Niro because he has so many standouts. Yeah. You know, for any other actor, this would be obviously their magnum opus. But with De Niro, like, Robert De Niro is my favourite actor, but this is not... Um, his best performance in my eyes. Where do you? Where would you? Just a rough scale. Where would you put it as a, a performance-wise? I'd put Taxi Driver and Godfather Part Two above it, and it'd be around Raging Bull territory. Okay. Okay. So it's definitely top five. Yep. But it's not his best. Okay. So back to Noodles at the peephole. He knows he's not going to see anything, but he wants to look anyway. He wants to remind himself of the past, of better days. He almost looks longingly through the hole, sort of hoping to remember his childhood when things were simpler and it was all about all about this girl, Deborah. Yep. So I want to talk about... So you've, you've, you've spoken about De Niro's performance, which I agree. It's, it's fantastic in this film. He, he is really, really good in this film. I want to talk about the character of Noodles, not the performance, the character. And it starts off as Noodles when he's young. And to, to me, he's... He's kind of this little rapey asshole. Yeah, he's a pervert from the get-go. He's not just a pervert. He's a little raper as well. Yeah, and you see him with—is it Peggy? Peggy. In the air and he's filling her up and he's forcing himself on her. I'm like, okay. 
this is the same De Niro. This is the same character we saw De Niro as earlier, where we're, we're feeling sympathetic for him that he's you know really like he's he's old in age now and he's reminiscing on his life. I'm like, is this what he's thinking about when he the time yeah. he tried to rape the woman and the time he's perving on the girls? Like, well, yeah, it is like and like going back to that that you know scene with Peggy, like she's resisting him. And his response to it is, yeah, you like that, don't you? Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. This kid's 14. And like, because obviously on another viewing, you know that he goes on to, you know, rape women yes. through his life. So seeing this from an early from an early get-go, I was like, Jesus. And even like the first introduction we get of Young Noodles, what's he doing? He's peeping on a 12-year-old getting undressed. A young Jennifer Connolly. It is a young Jennifer Connolly. First role as well. Yeah. yeah, what a role. <laughs> I, want, I want to quickly talk about Patsy with the cake as well. Do you see who... The fuck is it? Penny? Penny? The name? No, what was Peggy. It? Peggy, there you go. <laughs> I forgot already. Do you see who Peggy's mum was? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Um, I must... Uh... Georgie! <laughs> George! Oh my God! What are you doing? <laughs> oh. Yeah, I... I... I'm not sure. I did. I w- Estelle Costanza from Seinfeld, if anyone was wondering what the hell we were doing there. Estelle Costanza or Estelle Harris? <laughs> it is Estelle, isn't it? That's her name in the, in the show, isn't it? Frank and Estelle. Yeah. yeah okay. Her real name you is really Estelle. You really me then. Her real name is yeah. Estelle. Yeah, I want to talk about this this very long scene of Patsy sitting on the, the stairs and taking, like, bit by bit, slowly eating the cake. So, I feel like... Because this went, this went for a while, and I'm like, okay, they're, they're just showing this guy on and on and on. And again with the phone, the call, again with the phone ring, I'm like, what? Does this have anything to do with anything? Like, yeah, we see him, he's, he's gradually takes a lick of the cream, and then he takes the cherry off, and he's going to eat it, but now he puts it back, and then he opens the wrapper a little bit, and he has a little bit more of a nibble, and then after a bit, he just devours the whole thing. And the reason that we watch him do this for so long is that the payoff of him eating the dessert is ends up being far better than the sex with Peggy. Because this guy, this kid, he's, he's young, he's poor, he's probably starving, and he probably has never had a chance to eat something so exquisite. And you note the way that he, he once he gets to it, he, he opens that paper and he just, he just goes for it. He, he gobbles it down as quick as he can. In short, he's, he's hungry, and he eventually realizes after taking a small taste that eating is more important. And I feel like that it's in the, in the end it's better than sex for him. This this delightful sweet treat, the tantalising a little bit here, a little bit there, slowly getting into it. I feel like for him, not for me, for him. No, you disagree. I do disagree. For me, I mean, this is a great film. That there's a lot of a lot of things in this film you can interpret different ways. So I appreciate that that's your interpretation. But what I got from that is more focusing on impulse. And a lack of control. So, he buys this cake to give to Peggy for in exchange for sexual favours. And because he's got to wait, he's bored. What's he going to do? Is he going to sit there like a gentleman and just do nothing? No. He has a little taste. Oh, that tastes good. Maybe I'll have some more of that. More and more and more. And then, you know, this is the definition of not being able to have your cake and eat it too. So, she opens the door. He's got nothing. Does he? What does he have at that point? He has a memory of a sweet flavour instead of memory of sweet Peggy. I feel like both our interpretations kind of mixed together there. Like, I, I, I can agree with what you're well, saying. You're saying it's... he ate it because he's hungry and he's I never saw... had anything so sweet before. I'm saying he ate it because he's got no self-control. And this is also this no movie, self-control. He's eating it because... He's hungry. He, he's hungry and he thinks... It, and after tasting it, it's going to be better for him than sex. 
the sweet taste of this is better for him than having sex with this girl. Well, I'm not going to judge Peggy, all right? So <laughs> you can leave that at the door, please. <laughs> okay, but after this scene, we obviously get the uh, sort of the moment where Noodles goes from Noodles and his gang goes from you know neighborhood hooligans to actual gangsters. Yep. And again, in this scene, we get Noodles. Noodles and the gang are upstairs, and they they see they see the police captain you know, having sex with this teenage Peggy, they got no issues with the fact of what this cop is doing. You know, the issues of him abusing his his right, having sex with a minor, none of that is an issue for them. All they care about is how to make this situation better for them. Yeah. And you can see, like, when when Max is having sex with Peggy, Noodles is watching him. Like, he, this this character of Noodles is so obsessed with women and sex and I just really found it so emphasized in this early early scenes like I'd never realized before you want to talk about no self-control you see noodles have at it with Peggy and he just goes like a jackhammer and he's Bang. done in a second but then you also see Max and Max can't get it up no he's in struggle town yeah do you, do you think that like obviously that plays into their character as well like I know I know it does for noodles but does that play for the character of Max? How do you think that in? How can you interpret that into anything he does along the way? Well, I think Max probably has some self-esteem issues, and I think you can tell that later on when you know you learn about or when he gets so angry when people call him crazy, and even more later on you realize or you are informed that his dad was in a mental hospital and all that sort of stuff. So I feel like this character actually, despite being you know, like I mean, even something like buying himself a throne that the Pope had. I mean, how insecure do you have to be that the chair you buy is that great? I actually think that Max is the best character in the film for me. Yeah? I think he's... Why? I just... I think he's the most complex without going too, without going too overboard. He's the smartest. He, he knows what he's doing most, like, most of the time. He thinks st- multiple steps ahead. Hence, the this traitor's union... And, and this this new plan he's doing, he's already doing it. Yeah. And their opinion isn't going to matter to him, but he he's setting it up so that they basically do what he is wanting them to do without telling them what to do. Yeah, he's very manipulative. Yeah, and I th- I feel like, and it's not just the character as well, but the performance from James Woods as well is, oh man, he is so good in this film. Him and De Niro just outshine everyone else in this film. I think these two carry the film acting wise see I feel like there's a couple of eh, iffy acting I think I actually think Jennifer Connelly is a little you know she's, she's a child actor so you know but you can't really excuse that she's a little wooden I think it's I, th- I feel like the the bit the bit that I did like from her is I think it is the very last scene you see of her when she's got the door locked on noodles mm-hmm. and she and you, and you see the close-up of her face she, she knows noodles is going down a bad path and if she lets him in She's going to start falling into it too. And you can see from there, she pushes away from him. And obviously, he goes to prison from there. She doesn't know that's going to happen. So you can see that... I, I saw it all in the, in the face. The acting there, that was really good from Jennifer, Jennifer Connolly there. So let's go Let's go to that scene. So you yeah. feel like the reason she kept him out was because he'd got in a fight. And if she'd let him in, then she would get involved in that world. That as well as the fact that she he abandoned her. Yeah. Yeah. As well, it's for for Max. Yeah, that's what I got. The yeah. the. Go on, run. Your mother's calling you. And again later on. Go on, noodles. 
Your mother's calling you. The fact that they put that in twice, I think obviously accentuates how important this is for Deborah's character. That she loves Noodles. Like, she wants to be with Noodles. And the fact that he betrays her so easily, multiple times, it really hurts her. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. There's one thing that I find I see in a lot of films, and that's, if I haven't seen a film before, and I pick up on the fact that, yeah, The Simpsons ripped this off. Like, for example, when I watched Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and I realized that's The Simpsons episode with the comic book, where all three of them were up in the... The treehouse. Tree yeah. This one, when we get to the point where all the kids get the bundle of money and they're like, all right, we're making a pack. We can't see this. We can't get all, we can't open this up until, you know, all of us are together or something like that. Do you remember, do you remember the episode I'm talking about? It rings a bell, but no. The I flying don't. hellfish. Grandpa and the flying hellfish. Oh, Mr. Yep, Burns. Yep, yeah. Yep, That's yep. where I got that from. Like, oh, yep. okay. Awesome. So that was a nice little Simpsons uh, reference there. <laughs> Actually, at this point, just as that happens, they're all walking down the street. And as they're walking along here, I'm like, Hang on, there's five of them here, but there's four in the future. Doesn't matter. Ah, oh, oh. and exactly when I thought that, in comes Bugsy and kills little Dominic, and I was like, oh, that's why there's not five of them in the future. Yeah. So that scene where you know Dominic screams, Bugsy's coming, and then the music hits in, like, oh my god, it's truly like a western at this point, and you can sort of you can really see the influence of Sergio Leone. And how reminiscent it is of the many showdowns that he's directed and Marconi has scored. The pan flute is loud. And yep. All other sounds are gone. Mm-hmm. Like every other sound. Like you've got the kids screaming, they're running, there's the sound of the city. All you hear is that pan flute. Very well shot. Yeah, the cinematography is on point. And even like the poster for this movie is those guys walking, yeah. leading up to this scene. And you can see Dominic at the front sort of looking back at the um the other gang members yeah. or his other friends if you will but so there's no other sound until the gun goes off and it's super loud you talk about silences before this is the opposite okay this is bang slow motion has kicked in the other four members disappear left and right so perfectly like they're all sort of down the middle of the screen and then the gun goes off two of them go left two of them go right leaving only the youngest, Dominic, alone in the middle of this street. I just... So powerful. He gets shot. He goes down. Noodles has him in his arms. And we get the fantastic quote. Noodles. I slip. And it's just... Every time I watch this, it, it just blows me away. Like, wow, what a line. It's so small, but so significant. Do you think there was any deeper meaning behind what he said, or do you think he just thought that he slipped? Well, that, that's what I mean. It shows the innocent. It's, it's like he doesn't understand the ramifications of what's just happened. Yeah. Like, Noodles pulls his hand out from under him, and he sees his hand is red with blood, and that becomes a fist. And you see Noodles has just become rage. He runs out, stabs Bugsy repeatedly. It's not heroic. There's nothing like... Um, fantastic about the actual you know the act of what he's doing it is ugly noodles looks uncoordinated with the knife he's crying like you know he has the ugly cry face on and when he's doing this and you sort of think oh you know these tough gangsters in this moment he's not they're kids yeah he's this kid who's just lost a friend and you think you keep talking you mentioned about self-control when the cop grabs him, oh. he keeps stabbing him, which, you know, sets him up for a good stint in prison. Yeah, and that's it. Like, the cops run out, 
What's Max doing? He's he's hiding. He's he's, a- he's watching. He's doing nothing. Like at this point, he's impotent. <laughs> at this point, I mean, there's four kids versus two cops. Now one cop. Yeah. They could have killed this other cop and run away. Like they've already killed one. Max could have run out at this point, and he doesn't. But that's not their game. That's de- killing isn't. It's become their game in their- that moment. Oh, not theirs. It's become um, noodles. But are these other kids ready to kill? I think this really shows Max's selfishness here. What about Patsy? What about Cockeye? Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> sub-characters. Like, sure, sure, Max is pain that it's happening, but he does nothing to help the situation. Noodles acts, and Max does not. Do you feel like Max is just the persona? Like, he puts on this persona, but when it comes to the real deal, he's... He's scared. I do. And I think it goes with what you were saying before about how like Max is your favourite character, because he is so complicated. I going to say because he's a little bitch. <laughs> no, 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 not because of that. Like he is, he is an incredibly complicated character because yeah. he puts on this such masculine and aggressive front often, and he is so intelligent. But I think when push comes to shove, he is scared. Yeah, yeah. So that scene definitely my favorite of the movie, and one of my favorite scenes in any movie gets me every time. Yeah, I could probably agree with you about this movie. I didn't, th- I didn't end up thinking of a favourite scene, but going back over it, yeah, I could probably agree with you there. In terms of any movie ever, uh, I don't know, I, I, I really would have to go on. I don't think I've actually sat You'd down. You'd really have to go back and watch every movie yeah, ever. Yeah, so it'll be a while. I'll bring, I'll, bring that, I'll bring my best scenes of all time in, you know, 2078 for you guys, episode 3000. <laughs> okay, so let's just go back for a second to the scene where we see the young gang... Speaking to the, oh, what are they? The prohibition gangsters, the gang, the bootlegging gangsters. Okay, so they talk about their invention of these salt buoys that will stop them losing alcohol on the water if they get busted by cops. Yeah, that's all good and well. When we see it actually in fruition, when they're on the boats, did you see what happened when they fell in the water? In regards to what? So. Noodles and Max are hugging on the boat with their successful invention, yeah. right? And they have a little little play and they fall overboard. Noodles comes up immediately. Max pretends he's drowned. He hides behind the boat. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, because when, when you see the right at the end, when I don't know who's thinking about this, but yeah, it the, cuts back to it and you see Max... Like get up, like when he gets in the water, he gets back up and he, sw- and he swims yeah. back to the boat immediately. But you yeah. don't see that here. No, but no. No, the key is that Noodles doesn't see it. Yeah. And in this moment, like I know they're young and immature, but I really feel like this is foreshadowing Max's fake death later on. Ooh, okay, very good. I didn't think of that at all. Hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a little, just a little nod that I was like, ah, oh, I see. Nice. Very good. Cool. What did What did you think of the child actors overall? Good. Well, I I didn't ever think they were bad. The acting, I thought they were... I mean, truth be told, I thought they were really good. I didn't... I thought Max was really good. I thought Noodles was good. Um, Cockeye and Patsy, they're just background. Yeah, I'm merely talking about... Real, most of this movie, I'll just be talking about Noodles and Max. Yeah. And, I, I guess, Deborah. Uh, yeah, I think I think Matt, the, the the kids that played Max and Noodles are really good. Yeah, they were. Yeah, that was actually really solid. I thought they did their part really well. Jennifer Connelly, like I said, I think the only good part that she did was that final scene of her. I think the rest of it was pretty wooden. But you know, they're child actors. But still, you know, it's acting. Still, they like there are heaps of good child actors out there. Like 
we'll be getting to one in our what we've been watching l- later. But um, yeah, I feel like it could have been better. And and I'm gonna just say it now. I feel like her her adult counterpart, Elizabeth McGovern, she just felt completely unconvincing to me in this film. And even, and actually, she personally felt that there was very little to work with in her character as well. That's coming from her as well. Mm. But maybe maybe it's not maybe it's not the just good workman never blames his tools. Maybe it's not Jennifer Connelly. Maybe it was just the character. Maybe it could have been both. I don't know. But for me, this Deborah character didn't do it for me. And whether that's the character itself, whether that's the acting from both people, I don't know. But is I, this your negative? No, no. Oh God! <laughs> I'd say that's one of two. Okay. Okay. I think uh, there's a point here that I want to talk about. With we're in the '60s again when De Niro, sorry, when Noodles is old, and he's picked up the briefcase and he's walking along the dark street. Yet, taxi doesn't pick him up for some reason. I guess the someone in the in the cab when he hails the taxi and the taxi just drives past. Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. I mean, do you, why do you think they did that? Because there was someone in the cab. See, I thought that maybe the director um, threw that little snippet in to emphasise how alone Noodles is at this point. He is this yeah, lonely old nice. man walking down this empty street, right? In the in the distance, you see these lights coming. Oh, it's a car. Maybe that. Oh, it's actually a taxi. So he he hails for it and goes straight past him. He has lost all power, all all his friends and fam maybe not family all his friends and all these people around him that worshipped him and relied on him they're all gone yeah I actually think that if the scene we talked about before wasn't the best scene of the movie I actually think this scene could be the best scene of the film such a tension filled scene the sounds outside of of where he is the, and the the acting that jolted fear that you know that, that back and forth of see that clutching hand on the on the suitcase yeah just that fear like he's got all this money and he, and he you know he doesn't know what's going to happen and then you get that frisbee what'd you make of the frisbee I think it was just it's a, a very odd it's very odd in the movie I think it was just a a tool used to go back into the thirties yeah I didn't really think anything of it it was a bit. What do you think happened in the 60s at that Cause, point? No, because... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe he wasn't alone. Maybe we didn't see the group of kids playing Frisbee in the background. Um, but no, I think because like, a lot of the um, the cuts, the editing cuts um, between time periods are done very smoothly and very well. This one was... Unlike the prestige for you? Yes, very correct. For you? Um, this, this one was... I don't know, it was, it was odd. Like I didn't mind it. It just it did feel a little out of place. Do you think, like we talked about last week, that it, the frisbee was used as a kind of a tiny jump scare just for us, just for me and you? Sure. I mean, maybe. I'm not really sure that this movie was going for a lot of jump scares, though. Well, what do what do you think it was used for then? I don't know. What's the scene? What does it cut to? What's the next scene? You know, he's in his. Tw- he's just got out of prison, and oh, and, and Max grabs his briefcase. I'll take that yeah, for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Oh, because I, I actually think that when it cuts to Max taking the case, I think for a split Ooh, second there... Symbolic? I th- no, I, I kind of for a second thought that that was still happening in the 60s, just for that second. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, oh, I think no. that's the point. So I, what's, oh, I think you meant to think, oh, someone's grabbed it. Oh, no, we're in the 30s again. But I, I never thought about that. You got Max taking this suitcase away from him. More foreshadowing. You're on, you're on fire today. Look at that. Just swish after <laughs> swish. <laughs> you tell me you've put the effort into this. I do love this movie. Okay, so the kids are done now. 
We're done with the kids. So what we see next is really we see Noodles and his rise to power within this bootlegging operation. So he gets introduced to a few characters by Max and the crew, one of which is actually Frankie, played by Joe Pesci, who pops up for some random reason. I found it, it I found it a little weird here how Pesci looks older than De Niro here, but yet De Niro <laughs> looks older than Pesci in Goodfellas. Yeah, because in Goodfellas he's got, but he does age a lot in the movie Goodfellas. I think. I think Goodfellas at the start is sort of how Robert De Niro would look normally, wouldn't it? I don't know. I haven't seen it for a while. I think when we get to get to Goodfellas, we can talk about that a little bit more. Just, yeah, fair point. Yeah. Fair point. It's actually interesting to see Joe Pesci here play a gangster, even though he doesn't swear or kill people or anything. This is a very, <laughs> very um, calm gangster in this one. Yeah, it's it's amazing he got cast for this role. Go get your fucking shine box. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucking mutt! <laughs> oh man, I can't wait for Goodfellas. Oh, no, I love it. <laughs> I do love the line that Noodle says to Max later on when they're driving in the, the car after they've killed the Burt Young character. Today they ask us to get rid of Joe. Tomorrow they ask me to get rid of you. Is that okay with you? Because it's not okay with me. And that continues all the way to the end of the movie when he wouldn't even kill Max because even if even when it was Max that was asking him to, yeah, yeah, you just show that. that You're right. That is that that is like that is really like really good foreshadowing again, where he talks about being asked to kill him and he said he wouldn't. Yeah, and that does eventuate later on with yeah, ironically Max asking. But he does also say at the end like Max is like Max already died like like this is you're not Max. Yeah, yeah. So. But no, I do, I do like how he's loyal to the end. Which is interesting from someone who has so many negative character traits to him. He really does stand by this loyalty to a point, you know, where ultimately, obviously, he does, you know, rat out his, his crew to the cops. But I guess you could look at that as being a loyal move anyway to save their life, or at least Max's. One thing I did quickly note in the middle of this was when... The police chief, after, the, after they've like switched the babies around, and the police chief is going to visit the, the child, his child, mm. and he goes and he, he gives the, his daughters a kiss on the head. There was some horrible child acting in there. One of those kids was like staring at someone off the screen. After he, after Do you mean she, the babies? No, not the babies. The, his daughters, oh, his daughters. His younger daughters. He goes around and goes, how are you? He gives them all a kiss and that. And one of them just looks directly off screen at someone who's probably standing on the side. I'm like, oh, come on. Man, you really hate child actors in this movie. <laughs> They're not good. They're not good. There is a genuinely nice bit of dialogue between Deborah and Noodles when they say... Been waiting long? Oh, my life. And it would be a very nice moment between the two had it not been for this horrible horrible rape scene coming up next anything you want to talk about with this rape which one? Oh, well as if this guy isn't bad enough yeah he doesn't rape one but two people yeah it's like let's talk about the first one so they're doing this job and if, the people like Frankie tells them to no it's not Frankie it's Burt Young's character Burt Young tells <laughs> Burt Young is it Burt Young? Yeah, it's Burt Young. Like, I don't know. I don't know what his name is. Burt Young tells Noodles to go easy on the girl. Now, what, what is he saying there? Because they sort of, I think they go in there with no intention of harming her. But she, oh, I mean, this is a delicate subject. Does she sort of initiate this? Like, hit me? 
I think she says hit me to make it. She says to make it look believable, like this is that I am part of this. But he noodles, just enjoys it so much. Noodles he seems takes to, it to take a little bit level. too far and rapes her. But it is unclear when you're watching this how she does feel about it, because when they actually meet again later on in the movie, she's seemingly not upset with him at all. And the strange thing is, like, importantly, I think Noodles doesn't even recognize her. Like, this is someone that is raped, and he does not recognize her. Do you think that's odd? Yeah, this is this is the guy who we're supposed to be connecting with, I guess. And, you know, you get this first rape scene, and then you get the second rape scene with someone who he po- supposedly loves. I'm starting to think to myself, how how can I... Root for this guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair point, and this movie does this very strange things with playing with the audience's expectations of our protagonist. Okay, so moving on from Carol, let's let's get to Deborah. So obviously so this dinner with Deborah, they have a very, very romantic, touching, soft and gentle dinner together. She says she says to Noodles that Noodles is the only person she's ever cared about. But he would stop her from going all the way to the top. Now, Noodles comes back and says that when he's in prison, Deborah is all that he was thinking about. Like, he's, she's almost the thing that's keeping him going when he's inside. Yeah, they're setting up this touching relationship. Only to destroy it minutes later. Yeah, so, like, you know how I was talking about, there was a couple of things wrong with the film. One of them was, you know, the, the, the character, the portrayal of Deborah. This is the other big thing I have an issue with. This rape scene is ridiculous. I mean, what... What do you mean? Talk to me. What is the point of this? What you Give me your interpretation of why we need this. How are we ever supposed to like or even sympathize with noodle after, noodles after this? For a relationship we're supposed to see evolve and blossom, apparently, this turn is terrible. He can never come back from this in my eyes after this is done. And considering there's over an hour more, or even more in the film to come, this was a huge problem for me. Seriously, there. If, you, if you've got a, if you've got something to say here, like this, better, there better be a point to this scene because holy shit, it's it's going. It was, went on for so long. It was so uncomfortable, and it just it turned me. I off. think that's the point of it being uncomfortable. It's not going to be a um a nice rape scene. Oh is no, it? of course it's going to be uncomfortable. Why is it there? Why do we need to have this? You're talking noodles, our hero, or noodles, our our guy that we're following through his life. Yeah, it's supposed to be and and. And forget about what the audience is supposed to be thinking of. Like, they're saying that this is this is what happened. This is how the character of Noodles reacts. Okay? Like, yeah, okay, Deborah, Because remember, this happens, like, he changes after Deborah tells him that she's leaving that night for Hollywood. And virtually... Oh, he leaves after the rape. He, he changes his mind after the rape. He realizes how bad he's, he's hurt her. No, no, no. Like, what I'm saying is, go back for a sec. Oh, when she said Debra, before the... Okay, yeah, yeah, at the dinner, Deborah tells him... She's leaving for Hollywood that night. Oh, well, he And he changes. He's got, he's got to get his end in before she goes. Well, he gets angry. With it's, or without it's her almost like It's almost like he's hurt from this. Is that an excuse? No, obviously it's not an excuse. I'm not going to defend rape. But the, Sergio Leone is showing us how despicable this character is. That's the whole point. Yeah, okay. Like, Noodles does terrible things in this movie again and again and again. How is our... Main character noodles here. How is he ever? How does? How can he ever bounce back from this? How can he get back into our good graces from for, from the rest of this movie onwards? Are we never supposed to like this guy ever again? Do you think there's anything he could do along the way that would redeem 
himself in our eyes after he rapes this girl that he supposedly loves? Well, obviously, I can't say yes. So then how are we supposed to feel for this character or any at any point now throughout the movie? Like you said, the, the very next scene, he's he goes to see her at the train station. There's this sad, soppy music as he's upset that she's leaving. Who gives a fuck? I don't care that this guy feels sad anymore, that the that love of his life is leaving. He lost that in the, the last scene when he did what he did. Like, there's, I have no sympathy for this this guy anymore. He's just a downright asshole. And Okay, that's fine. But, like, there are characters throughout many films that do bad things that you still... You can still watch their story. Wait, okay. You just said that. We'll come back to that way down the line in this podcast because something about another movie. i got another movie we're talking about. I just want to go back to what you just said. Man, this tease better pay off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you talk, you, you talk about like Vertigo last week about how Scotty treats women and it's not going to find this day and age. Like, how do you think our hero protagonist gangster's gonna, who rapes women, how do you think that's going to handle in these days? Yeah, I think it would be portrayed very differently. Especially, as I said before, that Carol sort of reacts almost like she doesn't care when she meets Noodles again. When, you know, years and years down the track when old man Noodles meets the same age Deborah, it's like she doesn't seem angry that... About the rape. She's not happy to see him, obviously, and there's a lot of tension, but it's not because of the rape, it's because of the life she's lived since Noodles left. You know, she went and shacked up with his old best friend. Obviously, she's going to have a sour taste in her mouth from what Noodles did to her, and that obviously is going to carry forward in her life. And you look at the contrast between Carol and Deborah. you got Carol, who is revealed to be... Was she a prostitute at the time that they that he raped her? Or did she become a prostitute, a prostitute after that? Mm, I'd, I Well, judging that the, the gangsters know about her and, you know, told Noodles to go easy on the girl, I would assume that she's part of the group. Yeah, I would, I would say she's already a prostitute. Yeah, and then you have Deborah, who is a... What was she? She was a singer, was she? I don't know. Aspiring Actor? actress? Yeah. I don't know. Like, you, I, know I, I know there's a difference, but she just doesn't seem... I mean, she's obviously hurt. She's devastated. What actually struck me about the scene was that, as you said, it goes for so long, and the driver would know as soon as it starts what's happening. There's no barrier between them and the the guys in the back seat. But it goes on for so long, and then all of a sudden, the car screeches to a halt, and it's daytime all of a sudden. The driver pulls, you know, opens the yeah, door. How long was this going for? Yeah, like it goes from night to dark really quickly. And um, you probably you wouldn't have seen this because it's an added scene, not in the version you saw. Mm-hmm. But the next scene actually is Noodles drunk off his head meeting Eve in a bar. Yeah, he- this Eve character in in the version I watched was a little. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she, she was nothing. Yeah. In this, in this, in the version I saw, they actually add this scene, a couple of scenes with her, and it really does flesh out her character more. Uh, Noodles, he, he's at this bar, he sues her, and he, t- he tells her he just wants to get laid. Just Jesus. after raping Deborah, he looks at her, and the music starts from when he was peeping on Deborah. It's yeah, almost just, like he's I sort of projecting, this. you know, the love and passion he has for Deborah onto Eve. And then the next scene, they're in bed together, straight away. And then it cuts to Noodles seeing off Deborah at the station, and he's got this pained look, and you sort of think, and that it's makes just, it even worse. Yeah, it does. Like the, I don't... You tell me. You said to me earlier on that you have no issues at all with this movie. There are no mistakes. There are no faults in this movie whatsoever. You can honestly tell me after just talking about that that 
that is that's not an issue for you. This movie is still flawless. Flawless. Oh, at least you stick to your guns. Well, I'm honourable. <laughs> All right. So moving on from that train wreck, that dumpster fire, let's talk about something that goes in line with the continuous nature of some of these uh, shots that are going on. That's the coffee stirring. Mm. Is this obviously? It is it any similar to the phone ringing at the start? Because this goes on forever. He stirs. Is this? Is this to show Noodle's dominance? Like, everyone must wait for him to finish staring coffee before they can continue the conversation. Yeah, I'm not sure it actually relates to the phone ringing at all, to be honest. Um, the phone ringing is, as we've already discussed what the phone ringing I know, like, represents, but the coffee, that's just showing that he's been away from his group for a little while now. He comes back, and you don't know that it's awkward. You don't know that a bit of time has passed, and he's sitting there, and you have that slowly, that spoon hitting the ceramic cup, and you got Fats behind him, like, what's he? He looks like he's going to do something to him. What does he? Yeah, it, does he builds, have his hand? it builds tension. Yeah, because they know what? what he's done. They must know what he's done in regards to what raping Deborah. Well, for one, why do you think they know? And two, maybe Deborah told Fats, and then everyone else knows after that. Do you think they care? Why wouldn't they? This. Why wouldn't they? Have you seen the way that Max it's treats Fat, women? It's Fats' sister. Who cares about <laughs> Fats? <laughs> like seriously, none of as Fats. Is just shat on by all of these people. I think that the long take of the coffee stirring is there to build tension and show the audience that things have changed. The dynamic has changed within this group now. They were giving some looks like they 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 knew and they were kind of uncomfortable. Like I I got the I got the idea that they knew what he'd done and they weren't a hundred percent about it. And I and I think he knew that they knew and he didn't care. And it was that still like, I, yeah, no, I don't no, no, care, no, no. I'll do what I want. Okay, I don't think they're upset that he raped Deborah. I think they're upset that he let a woman come between them because... They do talk co- about that yeah, very, they, like, straight away after that. Yeah, yeah, and they say that Cockeye found noodles in the opium den wailing about Deborah. And that's that's sort of why they were, you know, upset. And Max is like, well, you know, what are you doing having a woman come between us? And then he responds with, well, why is she here? Why is Carol here? And Max goes off. Like, you think I care about her? And starts screaming at Carol just to prove the point to Noodles that nothing would come between them. Yeah, if there's one thing good I can say about Noodles is is the the chemistry and the relationship between him and Max. I think that that throughout the whole film is really good. And it, obviously it has a lot to do with the acting of James Woods and Robert De Niro, who are both you know, sensational in this. But was there... You know, you're talking about... Um, you watch the different version. There's other scenes that I might have missed. I noticed there was like a bandage or something on Patsy's neck. Did I miss something from there? Could... I mean, considering the first take was eight or ten hours, I'm sure we did. But nah, nothing <laughs> okay. in the nothing in the version I saw. So we get to a scene where they're laying on the beach. Everything seems picture perfect. Someone hands them a newspaper saying that prohibition is about to end. Basically, their income, their way of life, is going to end. And their life's going to change, and this is when Max brings on noodles in front of the in front of the women they're with that it's been his dream to rob the Federal Reserve Bank, and he tells him he's crazy, and he yeah, he, he really proves him wrong by going fucking ape shit at him. Yeah, goes nuts, and so at this point we get the scene, the really great scene between Carol and Noodles in the car, where she's trying to talk him into stopping Max from doing this to turning him in so that 
he doesn't kill himself. They're standing, they're sitting out front, looking at all the guards, looking at all the armed guards. They know Max can't pull this off, and Carol and Noodles both love Max. Yeah. They want to protect him, and even though like they they say they don't care for each other at all, they do have this mutual affection for Max. Yeah. So in the end, they have the same goals, even though yeah they can't stand each other. They they work well together. So we're basically into. The third act, the, 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 third the act? ending. I guess the third act. Yeah, we're we're into the old age, and uh, Noodles is catching up with Carol, as you do. Yeah, I actually, actually really like this scene. It's not a scene I remembered um, actually happening, but it's it's a really important scene for me because it. Carol tells him that Max's father died in a nut house, so his father was crazy, and that explains why he would get so sensitive and so upset about being called crazy. So. Carol tells Noodles that Max put the idea in her head to get caught. Almost like he was sort of, oh, if I get caught, I'd go away. And it's almost like you sort of start thinking at this point, like, did Max set this whole thing up? I can't remember when I first initially watched it, when I figured it out, or even if I did figure it out. Mm. Uh, But this time, like, I know I said earlier, I was watching it again as a first-time viewer. But I did know of that twist, so none of this I, I yeah. could think of, basically. I couldn't pick up on. Yep. No, that's fair. I want to have a chat about this scene between Noodles and Deborah, where she's sitting there with the makeup on. First of all, when she started taking off, it didn't even look like... She She looked like just like the young age. The same yeah. age, Deborah. yeah. It, I was like, it was really weird. It's, it's like they did no effort at all to make her look older. And actually, when I was watching, I was thinking... Maybe that's why she's still got this Cleopatra makeup on to try and disguise that they haven't put old lady makeup on. That's what on I her. thought too, but then I kind of. Then she takes about it off. It. Yeah. I feel like it, the makeup is symbolizing her, like hiding herself. Oh, that's good. And as she's slowly taking it off, she's actually slowly revealing all the info about Bailey to Noodles. So I guess there's, there's that to it. That's, yeah, that, no, was, I, that was what I, I thought. That. I, never, I never thought of that. And you get a good line from Deborah. Age can wither me noodles. We're both getting old. All that we have left now are our memories. If you go to that party on Saturday night, you won't have those anymore. Tear up that invitation. And this is obviously the not-so-subtle hint of what's to come, you know, that you can see the, the twist is coming up. You kind of, do, you, do you really feel like this is a twist? Like, do they hamper it as a big twist, like in, the, in Vertigo and in, in The Prestige? Is this a twist? I think it is a twist. The way that it's revealed where, don't open the door, you know, I'm begging you, don't go out the front, please go out the back. And then he goes out the front anyway, of course, because it's noodles. And you get that sort of, that look from a young Max. And I really like that they, they had that actor do that play, yeah. Max's son. I thought that was yeah. really clever. They do the young Max look up and sort of look confused, and then they do a close-up of Noodle's face, and you can see, like, oh, wow, Max is alive. Do you think he knows at this point that Bailey is Max? Oh, definitely, because obviously during this conversation, Deborah says that she is... Well, does she say it, or does Noodle's sort of imply that, yeah, you you are on the side with Bailey? Yeah, well, do you think for the audience then, for us, do you think it would have been more effective if Max was revealed 
when Noodle sees him, like for the first time, when he walks in and sees him there? Or do you like that they they have this, not again, not so subtle reveal of Bailey slash Max's child being... I do like it because I think that that scene with Deborah actually gets elevated to such a crucial scene and it adds a lot of emotional weight to it, especially that they've named Max's and Deborah's son after David. Yeah. After Noodles. So I thought that was really touching and I feel like the scene between Noodles and Bailey coming up has so much to it, has so much power and impact already. You really don't need to add the twist to it. Yeah, I think it. I think like what we discussed in Vertigo, it would co- kind of ruin that moment between them. Like you'd be more concerned about, oh, hang on, what? Hang on, what? Is he alive? That's yeah, crazy. And then yeah. halfway, you'd be like, oh, they're talking. Yeah. Like, you plus, know, there, you know plus there'd be no way from that point to show that they'd had a kid, and you know, yeah, that Deborah's exactly, kid exactly. is is Max's kid. So we get our final moment here between Noodles and Max or Bailey, whoever you want to call him. I must say, this was a fantastic conversation between De Niro and Woods. One of the obvious standouts of the film. I love that he never calls him Max. Mm. He calls him Senator Bailey every time. So steadfast on that. Yeah, because, you know, to Noodles, Max died all those years ago. This is just some other person. And obviously, when Max is telling him, I want you to be the one to kill me. You know, I basically took your life. I took everything from you. He said, no, Max died years ago. I can't do it, sorry. Robert De Niro actually suggested that James Woods wears a perfect set of bright white teeth to demonstrate his wealth and vanity. Mm. And the producers laughed at how much it would cost for it. So De Niro actually paid for it. Really? Yeah, out of his own money. (laughs) Just so it would be in there. And yeah, it obviously pays off. Sure. And it's in this scene that, you know, when Max asks Noodles to kill him, he sort of looks at the gun and he gets all hazy. The screen blurs and you get this great flashback of when you first see Max coming in on the cart, you see the sort of brief little history of the kids playing again. And it's it's so good because this movie is so long. It really is a true journey. And seeing the young gang again is powerful reminder of where they've come from and how far they have actually come in their journey. And I really, I really did like that callback to the early days. Yeah, really impactful how they go back like that. I also loved how when they're back in the real time, when they're still talking about it, you have yesterday playing again in mm. the background. Mm. And it's there's no, there's no vocals. It's just that theme. You know it. And it's it's very, very tight. It ties into reminiscing about their past. So let's talk about this garbage truck scene. Not what? a fan? I... Do you think it's garbage? Jesus. Too easy? <laughs> no. Not easy enough? No. What is... What, how do you interpret this garbage truck scene? Okay. I interpret it as Max comes down and kills himself in the garbage truck. Okay. okay. How, how do you interpret it? Yeah, I think I have to agree with you. I, you know, Noodles turns down Max's request to kill him, and it does look like he commits suicide. He jumps into the back of the garbage truck. But it's there is evidence to support that that's not the case because you don't see any blood or chewed up carcass as Noodles is seen doing a double take, looking at the contents of the back of the truck. So there's there's that. There's another theory that was going around where Noodles, you know, thinks that the garbage trucks cont- contains hitmen who would have killed him and stuffed him in the back. Like there was, it was heavily supported by that appearance of Max. Max ordered these hitmen to kill Noodles once he had killed Max and exited the building 
But as the truck starts up, Max appears, presumably to maybe wave off the hitmen from killing Noodles. Uh, I've never heard that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a possibility. But I think the point of this scene is that it is ambiguous. And Sergio Leone even went to the point of getting James's Wood stand-in to do the scene. So James's Wood. James's Wood. <laughs> his stand-in to do the scene so that you know, no one really knows what happened. And I think it is very open to interpretation, as a lot of this movie is. Yeah, because it just it, the interpretation of Max committing suicide, it, it, there's, some, there's so many glaring issues with it. Like, why is there a garbage truck in the first place there in the middle of the night? How did he know it was there? He obviously thought he was going to get shot by... Uh, noodles in the in the house. Yeah. Why is he coming out and then decided to jump in this dump truck like that was just randomly put there? It's a, there's obviously you said it's in, open to a lot of interpretation. I feel like we're definitely missing something here. But according to James Woods, it, that's probably the the question he's been asked the most: mm. whether or not he died in the garbage truck. And to this day, he actually has no idea. I guess the only thing we need to talk about here is that final shot of that gorgeous De Niro smile. That happy smile. What a happy man. Now, let's let's go through it. Do, does this indicate that all the events that came after this opium den was a hallucination? Was it a dream? I mean, th- this was actually supported by Sergio, Sergio Leone himself. He did once hint that it could suggest that the film was a dream and a vision induced by that opium he was smoking. What do you say to that? I personally believe that it is all a dream from once he gets into the opium den. Does that annoy you that oh this whole thing was just a dream no i think it adds more impact to it because you're seeing it through what noodles thinks would happen what could happen and this is a man so ridden with guilt at what he's done to his best friends that he creates this fantasy where hang on his best friend didn't die his best friend came out alive. He set the whole thing up and he's lived this long and happy, successful life. Same with Deborah. Now, maybe that's why she's not angry at him when he sees yeah. her again in the old okay. age because this is his fantasy. This is what this is what he's dreaming could happen. And like why would why would he have this dream where where Deborah, who is clearly the love of his life despite what his actions may say, hates him and is furious with him. In this dream, she is forgiving. She's understanding. She's lived the life. She's a star. She's this big hotshot. Very, very valid points. How about this one? So, at this point of the story, Noodles doesn't know that he's been betrayed to the mob, nor that his girlfriend has been killed, or that the gang's money has been stolen by Max. He's just come from the scene of the shootout where he's seen his three dead friends on the ground. How about that Noodles recognised that the body was, was not actually Max, and he's smiling because he saw the beauty of Max's plan to escape and start a new life. Therefore, Noodle's realization is that he succeeded in his goal of saving Max's life. And this theory is also supported by the fact that Noodles doesn't show any surprise at the end of the film when he sees Max is still alive. But then again, when he see like like what you said, when he sees the kid, he must he I think he realizes that that Max is alive at that point. So there would be no need for him to be surprised when he sees him. When he sees Max himself. Yeah, he clearly is surprised when he sees a kid, but you could argue, if you're arguing with that theory, that the surprise is that that kid is Deborah's kid. Yeah. That Deborah and Max have gotten together. And the surprise isn't that Max has lived on. Well, how about this one? Noodle smiles because he realises that he's now free of the gang in which he'd become increasingly an outsider and felt too loyal to ever leave on his own. 
This is backed up by the scene where the other three share a toast together, mm. when you get and you've got Noodles, who's sitting apart and only gives like a half-hearted toast to Max. Yeah. As well as when Max and Noodles are on the beach, and Noodles suggests that he has some ideas for some things they can do now, the now that the pro prohibition is ending. Maybe he could have been talking about some legal things, something like that. Some legal things? Maybe he's trying to get out of the game. Oh, he wants to go straight. Yeah. And this smile indicates, hey, the I'm, I'm out sure. of the gang. I, I can go free. Like I can, I can be. Yeah, I'm not sure that anything we've seen in this movie from Noodles tells us that he wants to go down yeah. the straight and narrow. That's probably the worst of the theories. Yeah, that's not great. I, I think honestly, I think the dream theory we almost need to take as fact at this point. Yeah. I looked at some interviews that Sergio Leone has done with various people on this, and someone asked him, "Isn't the film also the history of America linked to an opium dream?" And this is his response. The peculiarity of opium is a drug that makes you imagine the future as the past. Opium creates visions of the future. Other drugs only make you see the past. Thus, while Noodles dream how his life could have been, and whilst he imagined his future, it gives me, as a European director, the possibility of dreaming inside American myth. And that's it. The ideal combination. We walk together. Noodles with his dream, and me with mine. These are two poems that fuse together, because as far as the matter which concerns me, Noodles never leaves 1930. He dreams everything. All the film is the opium dream of Noodles through which I dream the phantoms of cinema and American myths. And in another interview, someone asks him, so the film, far from being realistic, might in fact be completely one Eric? And Sergio responds, certainly, that this dream be questionable in terms of reality doesn't really matter to me. For me, reality too is a dream. Now, the fact that you have the director of this movie talking so heavily and deep into this so-called theory that all this stuff that happens after the opium den is a dream, I think really does diminish any other theories about this film. I firmly believe that that smile at the end, coupled with what the director and creator of this masterpiece has said, really does align with the fact that what happens to Noodles in, later on in his life, he is imagining, he is fantasizing, he is dreaming in this opium haze that he has put himself in after the guilt and remorse he is feeling from ratting out and eventually killing, indirectly, his gang and his friends. No, I, I do agree with you. I feel like this whole thing was a dream. I was just throwing out some other theories that had been circulating. Playing the devil's advocate, you could say. Yeah, any other things that people might be thinking. But I do agree with you. I do think that this whole thing was a dream afterwards. And I know I asked you if it annoys you that it, hap that it, it is like that. It, it didn't bother me. Like, it's, that's not my opinion. It doesn't bother me either. It's not a cheap gimmick where someone wakes up at the end and goes, Oh, it was all a dream, and it's fine, because this, this, all this stuff still has such impact and such meaning once you think about it, right, this is what Noodles needs. This is his dream. This is his punishment for it. He goes into exile for years. He comes back, and everyone he loves has lived this great life, and that's his punishment. So that being said, aren't the mob still looking for him? At this point, wasn't that actually happening? So no, you, no. Yeah. The very start of the movie, the very first scene, we see the big gangsters walk in, um, speak to Eve and kill Eve. 
that's already a dream. Okay? Because because when they go and see Fats, Fats tells him that he's already in the den. And then the gangsters go in the den, he's already in there. Okay, yeah, all right. And that's what got me as well. I was trying to think, when does the dream stuff actually start? He goes from seeing the bodies on the street straight to the opium den. And you can see he's actually wearing the exact same clothing. So he goes from seeing this horrible thing to needing to get high on this opium drug and sort of not absolve himself, but look into the future and try and try and deal with this incredible guilt he's feeling. So I think that leads me back to the start with the phone ringing because there's something we didn't talk about is when that phone finally finishes ringing, it brings up this incredible shriek and he sits up out of the open den. Do you think that is when the dream starts? Like that? Because after that's, the, that's when he goes and he sees Eve's body and he kills that guy. That's when the dream begins. Cause but my, my, my problem with that is if it is a dream, okay, if... If it starts a dream from when he wakes up and he goes and he kills it, how does he know who the gangsters look like? How they've treated fat? No, but that's, that's everything. All, everything about that. No, but scene. that's all a dream. That's all a dream. Still, like that's all in his in his mind. Yeah, but, but you're saying, saying like, the stuff before it isn't a dream. No, but that's all part of it. I'm saying like when he sits down, he lays down, he starts puffing on the opium. That's when the phone starts ringing. That's his guilt that's mm-hmm. going through. Yep. And then once in that bit, the phone is picked up. That is when the dream starts off. And all that stuff here, Eve and Fats get, get done like that. That's still part of it, but it, like that bit where he rises, that huge shriek, and that's and when he rises, that is in that in his mind is when the dream begins for him, because that happens straight up. He he lays down, he starts puffing on his opium. The next scene is him waking up from this, ta- going ahead and, and sorting out this Eve business and helping out but Fats. But how would he know about the Eve and Fats thing? Because it's all a dream. This whole thing's a dream. I'm not, I'm not but saying... But I'm saying the even fats thing is a dream, but you're sort of saying, like, the dream hasn't started yet. No. And that I, that's actually happening. It, in his mind, the dream... Not in the, the movie. It's not like the chronological path. Like, this bit at the start is the dream, then it cuts back to him smoking the opium, and the dream continues. But at the, in okay. terms of him, his dream, that is when it starts. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. I guess that is it. Final thoughts? Any last words? Hendo, get us started. Alright, you think about incredibly long films and you immediately ask yourself, is this all worth my time? And the first thing I can say about this film is that I was never bothered by this runtime. The pace was set and the way the film's presented makes it never feel like it actually runs for that long. The structure of the film and how it bounces back from youth to adulthood to old age is not only shown well through smart transitions, but also spread out in a very smart way and helps tell a cohesive story. Except for one, I didn't really see any unnecessary scenes, and each one brought either a strong plot or character development. I couldn't imagine seeing the chronological version of how that and how that would completely butcher this film. No one should ever see that. Like they should just get rid of every copy they could find of that because that would be disastrous. De Niro and Woods are the standouts here. Their acting, whether alone or together on the screen, shines. In particular, Woods and his portrayal of Max. The character of Max is my favourite by a long shot here. He's smart, he's savvy, yet with an obvious mean streak coupled with somewhat of a moral guilt as well. The score is mesmerising from Ennio Morricone and there is enough open questions left out of the film to warrant ongoing discussions for years to come. And with some stunning shots and stylized set pieces along the way, there's a lot to praise about this film. My problems with the film is of our hero character noodles. Not the performance by De Niro, but the character himself, and in particular, 
the multiple rape scenes. I just can't get over them. How can you ever feel sympathetic for this guy again? He's this punk kid who creeps on girls, forces himself onto them, then continues his ways into adulthood. He's an unlikable character through the majority of this film, and he really brings the film down for me. In relation to that, the character of Deborah, I feel, is a bit underused and played a bit underwhelming by Elizabeth McGovern. I honestly don't remember anything from the first time I watched it, so this was essentially my first viewing. Again, everything here matches up to some of the best gangster films out there, but falters with its main character and his ongoing love interest, and that's what drops it to just a very good film for me. One that I would still recommend to watch, but with an asterisk. Dean's giving me a fist shaking here. Have at it. How dare you. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, for me, Once Upon a Time in America gets better every single time I watch it. The score, as we've said, is truly remarkable. It pulls me in every single time. The long run time, I, I love it. I normally don't like it, but I genuinely just want more and more of this film. Noodles is such a flawed antagonist for us, and I feel like that adds true depth and real daring from the the filmmakers to put this character in here that does such horrible things, but it shows so much about who he is and what he stands for. Max is great, but I love... I think my favourite section of this movie was probably the bits without De Niro or James Woods or any of those older actors. I love the kids' scenes. I love those scenes where they build up these these punk kids, as you said, and they build them up into these these fully fleshed-out characters that you really care about. So when you do hit that middle-aged um, section of the movie, the elderly section of the movie, you really care about these characters because of the, the groundwork that has been laid in those scenes when they're children. I truly have no complaints about this film at all. I rank it so high up on my all-time favorite movies of all time. And after watching this film, I actually went back and looked at my list and considered moving it up. It's already in my top 10. I considered moving it up even further. This movie is such an experience, a true masterpiece, an artwork. I love it, and I cannot say enough good things about it. I mean, we don't generally give star ratings, but this is so easily a five-star movie for me. It's not funny. Yeah, this I obviously know it's one of your favorite films, and I... I've enjoyed talking about it so much. Yeah, well. I have too. Like it is, it is a really, really good film for me. It's I so just, complicated. Yeah. There's so many. There's so much to get into with this film. I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, I, I do like, uh, like, yeah, I, like I said, I couldn't really remember much from it, and I, I am glad we got to go back and uh, watch it and break it down. So, so as we get into, I was the best because the crowd loved me. I don't think there's any real question about where you're putting this. No. Have we got a new number one here? Yeah, definitely new number one, and I feel like it's going to stay there for a while. Once Upon a Time in America is better than Die Hard, Django Unchained, The Prestige, and Vertigo. And it's not close. How about you? Okay. I have struggled with this one. Okay, so it's it's not better than Die Hard and The Prestige. <sighs> wow. I'm doing this in real time. I haven't officially got a spot. I know, we've been sitting here for 10 minutes now in silence. <laughs> no, he's over-exaggerating. So, let's let's start at the bottom, okay? Let's let's go between Once Upon a Time in America and Vertigo. They both they both have issues one with the the story, one with the the, the main character. They they're both technically fantastic. I know you you know you try you like to try to tell me like which one are you going to watch again more, which one do you enjoy more? And 
I think there's difference there. I think I enjoy Once Upon a Time in America more, but I think I'd want to watch Vertigo again first. I just... I, I feel, swear to God, if you put Once Upon a Time in America last... It's last out of five films. <laughs> oh my okay? God, are you actually no, 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 putting no, no, it last? Okay, no, okay, he, okay it's, not, it's not last, okay. But I'm saying, you can't have a dig because it's last out of five films we've done. Well, it, one of them is Vertigo, you can. <laughs> Vertigo is... Okay, no, okay nah, we did Vertigo is good. Okay. So, yeah, okay, for me it's better than Vertigo, okay? Is it better than Django? Whoa. Come on, think of all that negative stuff you said about Django. And all the negative, well, the big, the big negative thing I said about oh, once that's one, one, oh, one negative God. thing you had. You know what? Okay, you didn't sway me, but I do agree that I, I really only had one big problem with the film Once Upon a Time in America, where Django felt there was bit, bits and pieces here and there that ifed me on the on the rewatch. So it was half the runtime, and you said you were getting bored in scenes. I'm going to put Once Upon a Time in America at number three on my list. Don't expect it to be there forever. Well, depends what we get for next week. <laughs> All right. So, Dean, number one for you at the moment. Yep. Me, number three. Fair enough. We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is. And this could be it. Oh. All right. So, we've got three reviews from our listeners this week. We've got one from Chris on Letterboxd. I've been aware of this film and its reputation for many years. I've been putting it off mostly because of its length, but I do think the wait was worth it. De Niro and Woods put on a solid performance, and the costuming and set decoration is superb. Unusual musical choices and some bad acting makes this a step below some of the classics of the gangster genre. The nearly four-hour runtime can be a chore at times, but it was a worthwhile experience. Thanks for that, Chris. believe we have another Chris. Yeah, we have our friend, Chris. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's our friend. Okay, this movie is too long for a movie with a four-hour runtime. Not a lot happens. You can easily cut most of the kids' scenes and shorten a lot of the scenes, the phone ringing at the start and the stirring of the coffee, to bring the runtime down. Whilst the film is well shot and the acting is great, the characters were too unlikable for me to actually care about what happened to them. Noodles behaves like an animal rapes two women, one of them he cares about deeply, and shows disregard for most people. So in the end, I felt no sympathy for him. I didn't see the twist at the end coming, but it wasn't worth the four-hour runtime to wait for. This film doesn't do anything that hasn't been done before. There is a strange use of a commonly known pop song, Yesterday, by the Beatles in there that felt out of place, as it is the only song used in the film. And does Cockeye only know that one tune he plays on the panpipes? Expand your songbook, man. How dare you. If this was a two-hour film, it would be much better for it. Well, watch the two-hour version <laughs> and get back to us, Brothers. <laughs> nah, thanks for that, Brothers. Uh, if you'd like to follow Brothers, he has a blog. Just follow him on Twitter at a mad silentist. Okay, now to the review from Shane. Here we go. This is my all-time favorite movie, pretty much since I first saw it. I was floored by how good this film was on first viewing because I hadn't heard of it prior to being given to me as a birthday present. The Godfather and Goodfellas are usually the most acclaimed gangster films and they're both in my top 10 films, but Once Upon a Time in America goes way beyond them. It's really in a class of its own. These days we have TV productions like Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad and The Sopranos that create characters and plots that are more powerful than films because we spend so much time with the characters and watch them grow. Once Upon a Time in America benefits by a long runtime in this regard, 
and you can clearly see how this could have been adapted into a TV series. In a way, it's like having seasons 1 to 6 condensed into a single film without you being able to notice. So as a whole, I connect with the characters in Once Upon a Time in America the same way you would connect to characters in a TV series. This is also due to tremendous performances from the main cast, De Niro and Woods, of course, being the standouts. Their child counterparts weren't far away, though. The film does something else you rarely see. It shows you the lives of these characters in three eras, childhood, adulthood, and old age, and in doing so, it gives a more complete picture of them than you normally would see. I find this to be an extremely emotional film that brings tears to my eyes in a few scenes with that unbelievable theme playing in the background. Everyone is weighed down by their history. The bond between Noodles and Max and Noodles and Deborah is stronger than most bonds between characters in films. It also excels in the gangster aspect of the film. The harsh violence and language, including many scenes that are very real, it wouldn't be shown in modern age films. The look of the film is faultless. There's an impenetrable quality to the production that only exists in a small number of films prior to the 90s. Some of those would include The Sound of Music, Oliver Twist, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Who would have thought those movies would be uh, mentioned in a Once Upon a Time in America (laughs) review? (laughs) The Godfather has it too, but to a lesser extent. They'll never be able to replicate that again, I don't think. In short, Once Upon a Time in America... In short. (laughs) God. What? (laughs) In short, Once Upon a Time in America is a timeless classic that excels in every area of filmmaking and storytelling, and I doubt I'll ever see another film in my lifetime that goes beyond it. Well said, Shane. I totally agree. Yeah, well said. It's good to know that we're never going to get a review like that again. Everything's downhill from here for Shane. (laughs) I can actually see you two when you were younger sitting on the bed and gushing over how great this movie was as you watched it over and over. Hmm. Don't think that happened. No? No. (laughs) No, thanks for that, Shane. If you'd like to send in your reviews for any upcoming movies, please send us an email at imdbjourney at gmail.com. You can also leave a comment on our letterbox page. And you can follow us on Twitter at IMDB Journey. So, what's next? Okay, it's time to find out which movie we'll be watching next week. Why don't you hit that button, Dean, and we'll see where we're going. Alright, random number generator, here we go. 186. Ooh, we're going a little bit further down for a change. Let's see. Okay, 186 is Wild Tales. Cool. That's a um, different movie. We're going a foreign film. Foreign? Is this our first foreign? That's our first foreign film. Fantastic. Okay. So, be sure to get your reviews in. That's going to do it for our review of Once Upon a Time in America. We do have a section that's probably going to be as long as our review just then. We're going to be talking about what we've been watching uh, over the last month now, I guess. It's going to be a big one. Be sure to stick around. But that's going to do it for Once Upon a Time in America. As men, they shared a dream. I swear to God, Noodles, you and me together, we can make it come true. To rise together from poverty to power. There they are. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. A dream they followed through two decades that changed the nation. You ever think of setting yourselves up in business? Okay, as usual with this section is spoiler free. So don't have to worry about that if you come in here thinking we're going to be spoiling all these movies for you. Okay, let's get into it. I uh, just want to get a couple of quick films out of the way. I I didn't watch Die Hard at Christmas time this year or last year. I did actually watch Home Alone instead. Still a classic. Macaulay Culkin is stellar. You know, the humor is still on point. My kids loved it, which uh, made me proud. Anyone who hasn't seen this, 
basically just to reevaluate their life. That's all I need to say about it. Great film. Just on that, I recently read an AMA with Macaulay Culkin, and it was really good. So if you're a fan of Reddit, get onto that. It was a really, really good interview he did. Just recently, I just watched two pretty terrible films. I watched The Duff, and I watched Blended. <laughs> they're not they're not good. Just avoid them. Uh, talking about Adam Sandler, I actually watched The Wedding Singer again. It's one yeah. of the better Sandler films. Like The chemistry between Sandler and Drew Barrymore is very sweet and sincere in this one. And you can see from their repeat outings in 51st States, and unfortunately in Blended, and while the stupid Sandler humour is present, there's still a lot of warm-heartedness to the film. The soundtrack is so fantastic. I'm a huge lover of the 80s music, so this was right up my alley. I guess that stuck with me in films like Atomic Blonde and Call Me By Your Name with their soundtrack too. So yeah, The Wedding Singer, one of the better Sandler films out there. It's funny, with me, that movie, I actually didn't see it when it came out. There was probably... I watched that very late, like long after it came out, and um, it was still really good. I didn't need the nostalgia factor only to enjoy it, so yeah, I do like that movie. All right, so last podcast, I started off a bet with Dean about three movies he needed to watch. Did you watch those films, Dean? I certainly did. All right, why don't we start with those then? What did you think of The Room? Okay, The Room. It's so bad, (laughs) it's bad. This movie, I, I can't understand... Why this movie had a cult following. It is so boring. It is so poorly done. And I guess that's the appeal of it. So that you can watch how bad it is and laugh at it. But I I personally didn't enjoy watching it. And I feel like now that we have this great film in The Disaster Artist. I feel like The Room has sort of become unnecessary. Like why would you watch The Room when you could watch The Disaster Artist. Which is a great film that has all the funny parts of The Room incorporated into it. I didn't enjoy it. I found it embarrassingly bad and awkward to watch. I was very surprised by how much sex is actually in this movie. It sort of starts out almost like a softcore porno, but yeah, really bad. I mean, everyone knows it's really bad, but I didn't think it was so bad it's good. I thought it was so bad it's bad. Yeah, geez, they weren't kidding about this film, were they? It's it's the definition of cringe. The acting is so poor. The script is woeful. It makes zero sense. If you took the actual plot of the film, it would run for like 20 minutes, I reckon. There's Yeah, like you said, there's so much uncomfortable sex, scene, sex scenes in this film. It's just cringe. But because it's so bad, it's hilariously so. And I laughed a bit at the places I know was not intended by Wizo, but it's terribly awful. I'll never watch it again because I don't think I can bear that much cringe ever again. I think the only times I laughed in it was when I was thinking of how much funnier The Disaster Artist was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. All right, what did you think of Good Time? Yeah, I thought Good Time was the opposite of a good time. Why this movie is getting such rave reviews is beyond me, and why you like it so much is beyond me. There is so little that happens in this film. You wouldn't talk about unlikable protagonists. Rob Pattinson in this movie is just a nothing, nothing character. He's mean, he's cruel, he does nothing worthwhile. He goes from place to place, having a good time, I guess, but it's not a good time for the audience to watch this other person enjoying himself through this haze of whatever it is, drugs? Is he on drugs? Yeah, this is your review. Yeah, it's it's. I was very disappointed with this film. I actually went in expecting to really like it, and I thought the start was really good, but it did definitely go downhill quick after that, and uh, as I said, a bit of a disappointment for me. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what Good Time's about, it's about a bank robber who spends a night trying to free his 
his mentally handicapped brother after being sent to prison after a bank robbery went bad. And I I loved this film. It's got fantastic acting from everyone. Robert Pattinson is so good in this film. Even Benny Safdie, who plays the mentally handicapped brother, was fantastic. Jennifer Jason Leigh is in this movie for like 10 minutes, and she absolutely kills it. There's some well-defined and believable characters. It's very raw and a dirty film about the city nightlife and the way the Safdie brothers have used their unique directing style added to that, using lots of close-ups and long takes and drenching it in this neon-light look coupled with this thumping, fantastic synthesized score really adds to that feel. It feels real. These characters act like they would in real life. They don't hold back. Yes, it's uncomfortable to watch at points, but it's it would kind of be a cop-out if these characters didn't do what the things they're doing. And yes, our anti-hero basically has no redeeming qualities, and he's a scummy asshole. but his actions are the complete opposite of his intentions. He's trying to help his brother the only way he knows how. But this film isn't asking us to identify with these characters. Not every film needs to have a hero we need. We have to be rooting for. Yeah, this movie has no real plot. It doesn't have a traditional three-act structure that I look for in every film, apparently. It's just continuous scenes of this guy trying to get his brother out of jail, so you have no clue what's coming next, when or even how it's going to end, and that's what I loved about it. And I think the ending is superb. It's very much open to interpretation. You can see it as a happy ending. You can see it as a sad and depressing ending. I myself think it's a happy ending. I do have slight issues with it, the fact that the middle part of the film starts to slow down a bit, but that wasn't for very long, and I used that as a chance to catch my breath, because overall, this film was so great, one that I highly recommend. Obviously, we have different opinions. That's my thoughts. But that's what makes films so enjoyable. That's right. That's why we're here. How boring would it be if everyone thought the same? Exactly. So, what do you think of The Salesman? The Salesman. All right. So, after I watched these two terrible movies you wanted me to watch, I watched The Salesman, and I was... I mean, pleasantly surprised? No, it's maybe not pleasantly surprised. I didn't really know what to expect going in, and it was really good. Good. Um, the characters are... You want to talk about real. These characters are real. Yeah. Okay, like, the central plot and the central sort of event that happens that sparks everything else in the movie isn't... Like, it's not end-of-the-world stuff, but it's massive in the life of this family, and... The way they react to it is really touching. I really got inside the heads of the main characters, definitely. And there are all these little twists and turns throughout the movie, which I didn't see coming. And overall, it was a very enjoyable movie. Awesome. Good to hear. So I watched Jim and Andy as well. And that's a behind-the-scenes look at how Jim Carrey adopted the persona of comedian Andy Kaufman in the movie uh, Men on the Moon. Now, this was somewhat of a fascinating look into how a role in a movie can just consume you, especially if the role is of a real-life person. I haven't seen Man on the Moon and know very little of Andy Kaufman, but the recollection from Jim Carrey, complete with old footage, uh, behind-the-scenes interactions, while Carrey would never break from the moniker of Kaufman, it was very interesting to watch. It's not the greatest documentary by any stretch, as I do feel it overstates its welcome after a while, but it's still an intriguing watch. Yeah, I saw Murder on the Orient Express, uh, I felt like this movie was a bit of a throwaway movie. Tells a generally well-known murder mystery tale in a familiar way with many a famous actor to be seen. Kenneth Branagh is clearly enjoying himself throughout and does a serviceable job at portraying the eccentric pyro. I did watch this with my wife, though, who didn't know the ending, so that did add an element of entertainment hmm. for me personally as I could see her trying to guess what was happening. So that... 
That was probably the most enjoyable thing about watching this movie enough. It's it's fine, but ultimately unnecessary. Okay, I haven't seen it. I'm probably not gonna. You want to talk about Itonia? I saw Itonia a few weeks ago now, and I know it's been critically fairly well received. And even I've seen a few things on Facebook of people saying positive things about this movie. I personally didn't like it. I thought Margot Robbie is very overrated. I really can't see what the appeal is of Margot Robbie at this stage. I know she seems to be a bit of a darling in Hollywood at the moment, but apart from her role, her breakout role in Wolf of Wall Street, I really haven't overly liked too much of what she's done. She was okay as Harley Quinn, but definitely not as great as everyone seems to be uh, praising her for. I found that Tonya Harding's mother was definitely the standout. It's good to see her get some award recognition throughout the award season. Interesting to see how she goes with the Oscar nomination she received for it. But generally, I was pretty bored throughout this film. What did you think of it? Yeah, I agree. This movie didn't do it for me. I'm probably speaking blasphemy here when I agree with you, Dean, that I think Margot Robbie what? is generally overrated and her performance is just fine. Is just fine. Not enough for Oscar talk, in my opinion. This film tries to go for, like in the style of Goodfellas and kind of fails. Like, the music choices are fine, but nothing special. And I know the movie is called I, Tonya, so the film is going to favor heavily to the side of Tonya Harding. It just looked like they were basically, basically saying she didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. I felt this. I felt like this movie wasn't very daring at all. Yeah, it, it was very safe in what it did. Yeah, and from what little I know about the incident, I call bullshit. This film isn't completely bad though. There are some standouts. Alison Janney crushes this role as Tonya's mother. Very worthy of all the awards she has and will receive. I also think there's a great and underrated performance from Paul Walter Hauser, who plays the bodyguard Sean. He puts in what I think uh, are two of the funniest scenes of the film, which is the FBI interrogation and the TV interview. But aside from these two positives, there's really not a ton more that did it for me. You can give this one a miss. Yeah. Uh, Just quickly, I did have a chance to catch Red Turtle, the animated movie about a man on an island with a turtle. And I know, (laughs) I know, I know this film is so deep and meaningful and has so many beautiful and strong messages about love, family, and nature. Problem is the animation is substandard and the story is slow and forgettable. Massive pass for me. So I got a chance to watch Mother. So do, coming, you mean, do you mean Mother? Mother. <laughs> so coming into this divisive film, I had my mind open to interpretation from the get-go. And as I was watching it, I found myself thinking it was a fine film. It was intriguing. It had some good performances. But then the movie shit the bed in the last third and turned me off completely. Don't get me wrong. I understand what Aronofsky is going for here, and I did notice the very religious themes it was presenting about God, and the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, etc., and everything that goes with it. I also did see the potential topic of discussion on the current state of celebrity and the price of fame, and I'm sure if I went back and watched it, I would get more out of it, but I don't want to. This movie just feels unnecessary at points, and certain scenes I could have gone never seeing in my life. Yes, I see you're showing the literal interpretation of yada yada, I don't want to spoil it, we, we get it, Darren. I, I don't need to see it. It did, or even does, have the potential to be a great film. And yes, a lot of people do have it as one of their favorites of the year, but I just I don't want to give this film the time of day again. Just a solid pass. I completely agree. On the other side, I watched Thor Ragnarok, and it's so much fun. Highly entertaining. 
an obvious complete 180 from The Dark World, which I found to be one of the worst MCU films. The standout in the, in the film is the director, Taika Waititi, who shrouds this film with his trademark humor and directing. Hunt for the Wilder People was one of my favorite films last year, and this film has just made Boy and What We Do in the Shadows move very high up on my watch list. This movie was hilarious, with a bunch of laugh-out-loud moments with the best newcomer going to Rockman Korg, voiced by Taika himself. The film also has some great action scenes too, as usual, and a great soundtrack to accompany it. Chris Hemsworth brings his usual charisma to the screen, and Jeff Goldblum is Jeff Goldblooming all over the place, which is absolutely perfect in this type of film. I do think we need to just take a rest on the character of Loki for a while. Ever since the original Avengers film, the past that they have taken the character feel a bit muddled, and maybe some time away from that could be what they need. Kate Blanchett looks like she's having a blast, as does everyone else, a solid recommend. Yeah, I think the problem they have with Loki is that he's far and away the best villain in the MCU, and they try and shoehorn him and his character in at every point they can. Yeah. I saw Colossal recently. Uh, It's a highly original film with a great premise. The main two characters are surprisingly well fleshed out, and their actions are very believable, which isn't exactly what I expected for this pseudo-monster movie. Hathaway plays a recovering alcoholic well as she did in Rachel's Getting Married, and her struggle to get her life back together is the backbone of this movie, which was a wise move going away from the sort of premise of the monster movie sort of genre, grounding all the fantastical elements into a realistic and believable setting. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, I saw Logan Lucky, and this film was a good time. I love Ocean's Eleven, and being this is also from Steven Soderbergh, it's going to have the same touch. And it worked out for the majority of the film, but there were some things I had issues with. I thought Hilary Swank and Seth MacFarlane were completely unnecessary and were actively bad in the film. Luckily, their screen time is limited, so it's not a deal breaker. I also feel like the big heist twist reveal felt a little too tacked on. Like we're supposed to believe that these blue-collar rednecks are these criminal masterminds who can think of this outlandish plan. Yeah, the heist is fine. But what happens after the after is the unbelievable part. Like things need to be exact for the, all this stuff to work. It feels like there were parts of this plan that couldn't be fixed like that. But if you treat it as a fun romp, you'll have a good time. I don't want to say it's a shut off your brain film because it's a smart film. There's just too much convenience for this to work. Still enjoyed it. Won't watch it again though. So I watched Molly's Game. Yeah, I did too. So for me, being a hardcore poker player when I was growing up in my 20s. This movie... Hardcore. Hardcore. We were both hardcore poker players. We were right into it. Yeah. So this movie, yeah, was right up my alley. And I'm glad to say it delivered. Aaron Sorkin, he puts in a well-crafted screenplay that never drifts and never slows down, yet never feels rushed. His first attempt at directing, while not the best of the year, definitely merits some praise. Jessica Chastain is fantastic in the lead role, pretty much being in like 99% of the film and never letting up. Idris Elba, Solid backup. Kevin Costner is also solid as Molly's super strict but well-meaning father. The film overall is super entertaining. It tells a good story, but Sorkin makes it his own. A solid recommend. Yeah, I really like this film. I thought the best bits were actually the scenes with Kevin Costner in it in particular. Um, One scene, particularly at the end, was just blew me away. Um, I thought Kevin Costner was fantastic in this movie. As was Idris Elba. I kind of love Idris Elba and everything he's in. He's really good, isn't he? Oh, he's, he's so charismatic. If you haven't seen the TV show Luther, please go and watch it. I did he's, watch Luther. It was solid. so good in it. Um, 
Jessica Chastain is really good. Um, she always is. The plot was good. Directing's good. The script was sharp. Yeah, I, I recommend this film. Good movie. So let's talk about The Florida Project. The Florida Project. How did this film not get a nomination for Best Picture? It is beyond me. This film is great. It tells the story of various people living in a low-income environment in, would you believe it, Florida. This movie pains itself to feel realistic, showing subject matter that is rarely shown on screen. What the audience is seeing is often confronting and jarring. We are forced to question our morals time and time again as we see a mother try her very best and do whatever it takes to provide a roof over the head of her young daughter. Great performances all round, but it is really the actress who plays the young girl who steals the show, giving a mature and daring performance. The movie is a slow burn to begin with, but I definitely recommend you check it out. Yeah, I thought it was quite enjoyable too. Very real. There were some great performances from Willem Dafoe and newcomer Brooklyn Prince as Mooney. And while the penultimate scene involving Mooney and her friend almost broke me... To tears? Yeah, Unfortunately, the final scene itself kind of ruined the film for me. It left me with a sort of a sour note, and if it finished with the scene before it, to me, it would have been a, it would have been much more effective. But still, a perfectly fine film, and one that I would still recommend. Oh, that movie is so much better than Perfectly Fine. I <laughs> uh, just want to touch on a ghost story quickly. Um, I'm sorry, but watching someone eat a pie for five minutes is not a beautiful <laughs> piece of art. It's boring. I cannot fathom anyone actually enjoying this film. Maybe people appreciate its boldness and unconventional storytelling. I don't know. This movie makes no sense and doesn't bother to explain anything to the audience. Sometimes this unknown element of a film can be exciting to explore on a rewatch, to look for clues, but the movie is just so boring I could not fathom ever wanting to watch it again. Okay, fair enough. I watched The Beguiled. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what all the fuss is about this film. To me, it was uh, kind of boring. No one really stood out. It took a real long time for anything to actually happen, and the slow burn set up leading to the final act was quite lackluster. The movie is, is quite deliberate, but if it's not done right, it can end up being just boring, and that's what this film was to me. The climax was fine, I guess, but it, I just didn't care by that point. You can, you can skip this one. So after I watched The Beguiled, I realized that the next movie I was going to be watching would be my 100th 2017 film that I'm watching, which is more than any I've watched in any other year. I think the closest I got was, the, was last year. I think I got to like 83 or something like that. So I thought, I'll contact Dean and I'll, and I'll say to him, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, get, I'll get him to, to choose the movie for me. And now, I could have been really mean here yeah, you and picked... Batman versus Two-Face. <laughs> yep. I was ready for it. But no, you chose Only the Brave, which is based on a true story of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, which are a group of elite firefighters who risk everything to protect the town from his, this historic wildfire. Now, I didn't know anything about this film going into it. I thought it was a pretty solid film. It's beautifully shot with some great wide shots of the green mountains and countryside, coupled with a good soundtrack as well. The effects are pretty spectacular. If I didn't know any better, I would have thought that the fires were real that I was watching. Everyone in this film is fine. There's no standouts and nothing spectacular. But what I really like about this movie is that unlike like similar movies like Deepwater Horizon and Patriot's Day, to me this movie takes the time to get to know these people. There are a lot of scenes outside of the work zones with their families and their struggles and that obviously helps us feel more connected to them so that when they are out there battling all these out-of-control fires, you feel the stakes that they do. You care for them. 
And considering I didn't know a thing about this, as I'm sure you don't, Dean, the way it concludes kind of shocked me and it helped contribute to my liking of this film. So yeah, a really solid film. Another recommend for me. Very good. I'll have to check that out. Yep, please do. All right, I saw a movie called I Love You Too, Daddy. Oh, boy. Louis C.K.'s latest work comes in the form of a movie about a father struggling to cope with his daughter growing up and becoming a woman. Now, I personally am a fan of Louis C.K. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to see Horace and Pete, do yourself a favor and see it. It's fantastic. But this film was awkward to watch. In light of recent reports about C.K.'s sexual misconduct towards women, a lot of the dirty jokes fall very flat. Most of the jokes are of a sexual nature, and I see why this movie's release has since been cancelled. Having said that, controversy aside, the movie is tedious and uneventful. You could probably stay away from this one. I will. So I watched Mudbound. Did you watch Mudbound? You know I did. I know you did. <laughs> so Mudbound is about two men who return home from World War II to work on a farm in rural Mississippi where they struggle to deal with racism and adjusting to their life after war. Now, to me, this is quite a powerful film. It's one of the better ones out there to portray the state of racism in like the 40s and the 30s in Southern America with some impressive acting, in particular from Carrie Mulligan. But in general, everyone holds their own here. The movie looks great in its own gritty and raw way, and the movie isn't afraid to address some sensitive topics, including some hard-to-watch, somewhat graphic scenes, sometimes to drive the point home. So, yeah, it's definitely worth a watch for me. Yeah, for me, I didn't know anything about it going in, and I was very impressed with it. The acting across the board is top-notch. The story is blunt and shocking. The way the movie depicts life after war for different people in different classes is brilliant, and I can't recall a movie like it, to be honest. So many scenes in this movie really had an effect on me. Quality, well-made movie. Good to see it get some Oscar nominations as well. So, Paddington 2 just recently broke the record on Rotten Tomatoes, for the film to have the most ratings and still remain at 100% with 176 so far. I've not heard a bad word about this film, so I thought I'd check it out, but not before sitting down and watching the first Paddington film. And man, oh man, what a delight this film is. It's just a wonderful family film that's funny in all the right places for kids and adults, a story that's not overly complicated, very childish, but not so much that it would bore grown-ups, and there's so much heart, so much heart. Paddington is so genuine and lovable with just the right amount of naivete from him that it's endearing. Nicole Kidman is in this film as the villain and she's just chewing the scenery here and it's as this hilarious, she's over the top, this hilariously terrible. No, this hilariously over the top villain taxidermist hell bent on getting Paddington stuffed for her museum. You can tell she's having a blast in this role. And I did with the movie too. It's a high recommend for me and I can't wait to see the sequel now. I really hope it lives up to this expectation. So I watched the remake, the It remake recently. And I was curious after I saw it because I know that you turned it off halfway and said it was trash. And I was wondering where did he turn it off? And your reasoning, if you want to say it, do you want to... No, that's private. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I I tried watching this movie about three times and yeah, eventually I turned it off halfway through. I I know the old T V movie with Tim Curry pretty well. And I found the formula that this movie had of something scary happens, the a single kid walks towards it, gets scared. Let's go to the next kid and do the exact same thing. Then when we've done that, let's do it again. And again, 
It was so boring for me, and I thought the CGI effects for such a high-budget film as well were really poor. So I was very let down by this movie. I went in expecting it to be good, and it was so bad I turned it off. Obviously, you disagree with me. Yeah, so while I see what you're saying is, for me, it's a negative towards the film as well, that didn't warrant a shut-off for me. So horror is my is my least favourite genre. I find most films to be cheesy and overall not scary, negating the theme of horror. It was an exception, as not only did this film give me some actual chills, it's entertaining and it's never dull. The acting from the children is very good, better than your average child actor, and since the film is 95% these children, the film also puts you in the sympathetic mind of the children by making every single adult a despicable arsehole. From an overbearing parent to a seedy pharmacist, you need to be able to connect with these kids, and I did. The film is dripping in 80s nostalgia, and I guess it's so glaring in your face that it does become a turnoff after a while. Bill Skarsgård is hypnotic as it really brings it. I've seen the original It as well, all four hours of it, and I've got to say, I didn't love it. I thought it was incredibly outdated when I watched it like 12 years ago, so I can't imagine how it holds up now. Yeah, there is a point where it feels repetitive for a while, but not enough to warrant the very rare shutoff. I've only had one shot off in my life and that was from A Million Ways to Die in the West and I've had one walk out of the cinema and that was from Shark Tale. This was a fun adventure. With you some... walked out of Shark Tale? Could... Oh, what did you expect I was like, going done. Shark Tale? I'm like, this is it. I can't... Oh, I'm done. <laughs> I've never walked out of a cinema. I fell asleep. I fell asleep in the cinema. I fell Actually, asleep during 300. I fell asleep during the dark night. I'm I was drunk and it was the third time I was seeing it. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this was a fun adventure with some genuine thrills and chills along the way. Some solid acting as well. Highly recommend. I can't wait for the sequel. All right, let's talk about Coco. Coco. Well, Pixar have done it again. Despite seeing the glowing reviews this film is getting prior to seeing it, I was not overly hyped for it. The trailer and even the animation style seemed a bit off to me. A kid's movie about the dead? What is this movie? But quickly into it, I forgot about my reservations about it and fell in love with the characters. This is what Pixar do so well when they are on fire. They make you have an emotional connection with the characters. They make you really care. It's such an original story that goes places you do not anticipate. Truly a movie full of heart that the whole family will love. It had my three kids glued to the TV with me. Hard to find fault with it. A knockout from Pixar. Yeah, what's there to say about Pixar? So many amazing films to their name and Coco is no exception. A very heartfelt story about family and remembering your heritage and those who came before you. Very emotional. It wouldn't be a Pixar film if it wasn't. The tears weren't flowing for me. Oh, they were flowing for me. And even when I watched it for the second time very recently, I didn't get any. But then again, it took the third Inside Out watch for me to, to let loose. So who knows? Maybe on a third go, I might get there. And not only is it heartwarming and pure, but it's also a fun family adventure, which will be enjoyed by adults and kids alike. There's something for everyone here. My family loved it. My wife, my kids, even my dog. And the animation is oh, well, as... Well, 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 well. Even your dog... My dog loved it. Get off awesome. My dog loved it. Sat there and watched the whole thing. Your dog doesn't love anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, yeah, and the animation is, as usual, spectacular. There's no surprises there. Another touchdown for Pixar. Okay, so let's do a quick rundown of the Best Picture noms that we've watched recently. Let's talk about The Shape of Water. Mm. Yeah, it's got the... Uh... The most nominations this year? Mm. Shape of Water is visually stunning. You can see the trademark director's creativity and vision from the jump. 
The design of the creature is gorgeous, both terrifying and beautiful at the same time. You really can believe the protagonist's behavior is possible, despite how ridiculous it sometimes is, through clever and touching scenes between Sally Hawkins and her friend, played by Richard Jenkins. But it's truly Michael Shannon's performance that steals the show here. He has fast become one of my favorite actors. His aggression and cold menace in this film is so good, you forget you're watching a movie until the fish man appears. The movie does, however, transcend reality in a way that hurts the film. Whilst the fantasy element of the film is obviously integral to the plot, I did find myself literally laughing at the scenes when the relationship between... Sally Hawkins and this fish man is building. And since at its heart this movie is a romance, this movie did not have the impact on me that it was reaching for. Michael Shannon was fantastic. I'm shocked that he didn't get a nomination and Richard Jenkins actually did over him. What did you think? Yeah, 13 nominations. Man, that's that is crazy. It's massive. Yeah, it really is one of those films, though, that covers a lot of ground Oscar-wise. I can see why it gets nominations for acting and directing and costume and music and screenplay, etc. It's very well-rounded like that. But in terms of the overall film, it's good. It's it's not great. It, it feels very authentic for the period it's set in, the 50s. It's a nice love story. Yeah, you might freak out that it's between a human and a fish man, but this is somewhat of a fantasy film, like which is what Guillermo del Toro does best. He's monster films. If you don't believe me, go see Pan's Labyrinth. We'll be breaking that down in the future too. Sally Hawkins is genuinely fantastic as a mute cleaner who realizes her love for something that doesn't necessarily see her faults and just sees her for her. Her acting and emotions she projects without the use of dialogue is wonderful. I wouldn't be neither shocked or disappointed if she took home the statue Richard Jenkins also puts in a fantastic performance as her neighbour, and Michael Shannon is chilling as the cold-blooded antagonist looking to destroy this fish man. While uh, Octavia Spencer, she's there, I guess. She didn't do anything special, and I don't think she should have got the nomination for a supporting actress. She honestly. does her usual thing, and yeah. the Academy love it. Like she's the she's the Meryl Streep of supporting actresses. <laughs> <laughs> The practical effects are so on point, it's hard to believe that this is actually a real-life costume that is being shown to us. I do feel the movie does drag at points, and the side piece about the Russians felt like it could have been put a bit more in the background, but I really love how it ends, and and overall, it's a really good movie, and we're probably going to be hearing it read out loud a lot at the Academies coming up, so check it out. I also watched Call Me By Your Name. I thought this was a wonderfully good-looking film set in the early 80s Italy, very vibrant, felt like a place I wouldn't mind living actually. I thought the acting was good from both Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer, with some nice choices of music as well. I did think that the pacing was quite slow sometimes however, and quite iffy to watch at points. I have no problem with the love between two men, and the movie does a very good job of capturing the relationship and love between them. It just gets a bit graphic at points, and the peach scene was a bit hard to swallow, pun intended. All of that said, this movie shines so bright, right at the end, with what I'm pretty sure is the best ending to a film I've seen in years, with the conversation between Elio and his father, played by Michael Stuhlberg, and the very last lingering shot of the film. It's a wonderful movie that everyone should check out. All right, let's talk about Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour, yeah. Uh, to me, this is the weakest of the Best Picture nominations. Yes, it's a good accompanying piece to Dunkirk, and I'm actually interested in watching Their Finest to complete this 2017 Dunkirk trilogy, but I found this film to be mildly slow at points, a bit Oscar-y and sappy at points it didn't need to be. The story itself is intriguing, and on that level I enjoyed it. 
there just could have been some better choices in terms of pacing. Gary Oldman is obviously the overwhelming driver of this film, looking unrecognizable if you didn't know it was him. His performance is definitely worthy of all the awards he has and will be receiving, but I don't think it's so outstanding in regards to other actors in different roles too, like uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Timothy Chalamet as well. But in terms of the film, he is the reason why it's as good as it is. So check out his performance and hopefully you'll enjoy the story as well. Yeah, considering the drabness of the movie being set mostly in boardrooms and parliament meetings, this film is successful in making the subject matter interesting, and dare I say it, entertaining. The problem is, though, is that it is almost solely because of the brilliant performance of Gary Oldman, who gives a performance so much more than just makeup and a cigar. Once you look past Oldman's acting chops, the movie does drag in places, however, and ultimately ends fairly abruptly. But The Darkest Hour is educational, at least, and had me reading about dead politicians long after the credits had finished. Worth a watch. Okay. So I went back and I rewatched Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and man, it is even better on a rewatch. All the main issues I had with the film have gone. I don't know what I was thinking about this too many characters shit. Everyone gets the appropriate amount of time and fleshed out quite well. And the ending on a second time around actually really worked well for me. When you look at the development of the central characters and their themes of revenge and guilt and redemption that this film is drenched in. So yeah, great film. Better on a second viewing. High recommend. Mm. I also saw The Post as well. And I think this is a perfectly fine film. It's really a typical Oscar movie, you know, true story, scandals, classic actors, etc. Streeps, yeah, she does shine in this film. She's the best part of it, but I don't think she should have got the nomination still. It just seems like she has a spot booked in every year for whatever role she does. Here she does good. Good job, Meryl. Hanks is also Hanks. I think, actually, Bob Odenkirk is pretty good, too. I think he's, you know, Meryl Streep's the best in this, but Bob Odenkirk certainly should have maybe got a not or a mention, perhaps. Like, yeah, knows? no one's talking about him. Yeah, I think he did really good. My issues from this film, actually, they stem from the story itself and the direction that it takes. With this overriding plot, there's a lot of directions that Spielberg could have chosen to take it, but I feel he chose quite a, a weak story in the end and focuses on just this one key decision by the Washington Post themselves and whether they're going to post these incriminating documents or not. It's really the first half is them getting a hold of these documents and the second half is then deciding what to do with them. And when it ended, I was like, hmm, that's it? Hmm, okay, alright. So there's nothing really scathing or overall negative about the film. It's just this middle-of-the-road Spielberg Oscar film. Nothing more, nothing less. You can take it as you want, like, go see it because it's a Best Picture nom. That is the only reason hmm. I'll be seeing this movie. And that's going to do it for all the movies we've seen. We've, we still haven't seen one Best Picture nomination, which is Phantom Thread. Yeah, we hope to see that shortly. Yeah, we'll be seeing that in the next couple of days. And we will then be doing our top 10 films of 2017 in the next couple of days. So be sure to look out for that. But aside from that, we will see you next week for our review of Wild Tales. Wild Tales. And I will see you then, guys. Bye.